can I ask you a question? Sure. Uh, have you ever found any chud? podcast this is the one that you have been waiting for and specifically by you i mean robert reineke my guest this is the episode that robert reineke uh who you know his writing on uh you, you write for row three or where the long tail ends or both uh where the long tail ends where the long tail ends um and you also have a a monthly podcast called watch the skies still watching the skies still watching the skies i'm so close on both <laughs> Robert Reinecke has been a fan of the show for a while, and he's a great guy, and he's he's become a friend of me and Jim, and pretty much since he started listening to the podcast, he's been insistent that we must have an episode on Terrence Fisher. Um, and years later, <laughs> he's been waiting years, but it's finally here, the episode on Terrence Fisher. Robert, how do you feel? Uh, nervous? <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> I don't think I'm uh, nervous since I uh, did my thesis presentation, but it, it better be what, worth it. What was your What was your thesis on? Uh, the The energy costs of landfilling solid waste. And, uh, you know what? I, that'll be the bonus episode we'll do later. <laughs> uh, I, I think I'd rather talk about Hammer Horror movies. So, uh, I mean, previous to preparing for this episode, I only had sort of a passing uh, interest and you know familiarity with. Uh, the the Hammer Studio, um, you know the the studio that sort of it revived horror in the late fifties and throughout the sixties um, by sort of doing these uh, great remakes of the Universal horror films with Peter Cushing and Christopher Lee, uh, Curse of Frankenstein, Horror of Dracula, many others, The Mummy, I'm Curse of the Werewolf, all we'll be discussing later. Um, but I have to say, like before, I was preparing for this. I knew of them, and I'd seen a couple, and they weren't really my thing. I think I, I had seen Curse of Frankenstein, I had seen The, the Mummy, and I'd seen uh, Horror of Dracula. And Horror of Dracula was the closest, to because that's just a really tight, fun, kind of uh, swashbuckling kind of a horror movie. Uh, so I was like, I like that one, but most of them, whatever. But I have to say, Robert, you, you have made a, a fan of, out of me. I'm actually I'm kind of into Hammer now. That's uh, good to hear. I mean, I'm 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 glad. I think most people know of Hammer in a general sense, and I think some of what they know of Hammer is colored by the 1970s movies, which are a lot of them with just cheap TNA. Uh, sure. So when you watch a a, a Fisher film, I, I think there's a little bit more going on there. Um, and I, I think he's a nice break if you if you take him in the context of his time because there aren't a whole lot of films like Terrence Fisher films uh, uh, beforehand. I mean, it's, yeah, it's true. It's it's always it's fun, it's funny watching these and then like being oh this is fifty seven and then I would think about like what a horror movie in America looked like in nineteen fifty seven or like 
or like the early sixties and it would, and it, and it would just be kind of schlocky looking and kind of cheap. And, you know, even, even the really good horror movie, American horror films from the sixties, they usually weren't beautiful. Like the Terrence Fisher movies were. No, I mean, and you, you had the black and white and we can, we can, you can see Terrence Fisher is probably the first uh, horror director that worked extensively in color. So his, his influence, especially his use of blood is, uh, something that uh, we still have a, a great uh, uh, influence on what we see today. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, really, it, it, it was sort of, uh, once you settle into sort of the hammer mode uh, of of horror, which is just, it's less, you know, I um, it had been a couple years since I had through seeing The Invisible Man and Frankenstein and Bride of Frankenstein sort of gotten into the universal horror films. And to those and to me, those films are just like uh I like the gothic atmosphere. I like I, I like just how creepy everything is. And the hammer films, I mean they're beautiful looking, but there's there it's almost to a fault everything <laughs> everything is nice. Uh uh we were talking briefly uh before the show, like um you know, you 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 see uh, um, you see Todd Browning's Dracula, and the castle just looks like a hole, and there's just animals crawling, like weird animal, like armadillos crawling everywhere, armadillos, yeah. Yeah. giant spider webs, and and it's just it look. And then you get and you when when you watch a uh, horror of Dracula, and you see the, you see Dracula's castle, you're like oh yeah, no, this looks like a nice place to live. Like the feast, the feast actually looks inviting instead of just like I wouldn't eat anything out of this abandoned building. <laughs> No, no, I mean that's that's it. It's uh, um, it's the allure of evil that uh, is in the the early Hammer films. They they all look uh, pretty and charming. Evil is handsome in them, and that's uh, uh, something that we've actually kind of moved away from, or at least we moved away from in the eighties. So and uh, yeah, so it, but you know, I and originally when I watched Hammer, I'm like this is kind of dull. These settings aren't interesting to me. Um, and then I was watching more of them. You sort of just get into the mode, and you realize that you know um, these—they're they're not boring films. They're very well paced, especially these are in early Terrence Fisher movies. And um, you know, there, there's a there's an integrity to them that's interesting. It's almost like if you go back and you watch slasher movies from the early '80s, uh, like '82 is probably the latest you'll see this. But like slasher movies from that time, they actually bothered like, well, here's a plot, and here's the reason why the killer is this and here's the characters and there's a there's sort of an integrity to it all because it hadn't yet just fallen into a formula and when you watch Terrence Fisher's movies he's really actually cares about the characters and the themes especially the themes and sort of he's interested in actually telling a story which is certainly by the time you got to the 50s universal movies were not that universal movies were just uh, a collection of monsters bumping into each other and then monsters bumping into Abbott and Costello yeah i i mean i, I think i think that's uh Terrence Fisher's strength that he takes things very seriously when he and very earnestly when he uh directs them and he did that all through his career i mean it's uh not he he wasn't having a a a go at it he was just taking it here's the story Here's how I treat it seriously, and uh, here's the best way to show it. Um, and that that's uh, still is, is kind of refreshing today to see because we all know that every horror series starts out probably with the, the first one is series, the sequel, and then it's they start to amp things up and go in crazy directions by about the third. Sure, yeah. I mean, once you once you're at ideas, all you can really mess around with is tone. 
Um, so things tend to just devolve into camp. Uh, I, I, I can't think of a single, I was trying to think, I was trying to say except or unless, but I really just think every single horror series, I mean, I haven't seen all the Saw movies. Those movies are kind of, I don't like them. I find them unappealing just because of how earnest and stupid they are. And that's a deadly combination. Um, but I wouldn't be surprised if every single Saw movie was the same level, had the same tone and the same level of earnestness and stupidity. Or maybe they get super weird and stupid. I don't know. But uh, at any rate, uh, we'll be talking about Terrence Fisher later in the episode. I have a little bit of business to take care of. Um, this is for you listeners. Listeners, we're going to do a Halloween bonus episode where we compile uh, the sort of the director's club. This is me, Jim, and our listeners and contributors uh, sort of what we think are the greatest horror movies uh, of all time, except, except um, most of these lists always just end up being the same movies because there are just some undisputed masterpieces. You're not going to make a list of greatest horror movies of all time where the top of where the thing and Halloween and the shining and psycho and Texas chainsaw massacre, like where these aren't all at the top and, and that just gets boring. No one needs to hear any more about Night of the Living Dead. <laughs> you know, everyone's seen Night of the Living Dead three, 13 times. Everyone knows how great it was that Romero cast a black man as the lead and didn't make a big deal of it. We don't need to hear about that anymore. So what we're doing is we want you to send in your top 10 horror movies, except there's a list of movies you cannot include. And I'm going to read this off to you, but this is also going to be on the website. So uh, don't worry about catching this. I'll just go to directorsclubpodcast.com to see the list of uh, forbidden movies. But uh, send your – so send your list to directorsclubpodcast at gmail.com. But your list may not include The Exorcist, The Thing, Alien, Dawn of the Dead. Uh, and the Thing is obviously John Carpenter's The Thing. Dawn of the Dead's obviously the original uh, George Romero uh, film Halloween, John Carpenter original, Night of the Living Dead, uh, George Romero original, The Shining, Psycho, Hitchcock's original, An American Werewolf in London, The Texas Chainsaw Massacre, Toby Hooper's original, uh, Carrie De Palma's original. <laughs> it's it's sad how many of these have been remade when you when you think about it. But uh, you if if you like the remakes, if the remakes are one of your favorite movies, those are allowed. So that's why I'm specifying uh, Jaws. Frankenstein, the original by James Whale, uh, Nosferatu, the original by Murnau, um, Scream, Evil Dead by Raimi, Evil Dead 2, The Fly by Cronenberg, uh, that, at that time it's the remake that's off limits, um, Rosemary's Baby by Roman Polanski, or Silence of the Lambs. Those aren't allowed on your list. So I want to know what movies are personal to you, what horror movies you really love. And um, if you are having trouble thinking of 10 movies that aren't on that list, then this episode is going to be a great opportunity for you to hear me and Gabe Powers talk a lot, talk about a ton of horror. We've gotten maybe 13 lists already, and none of them have synced up. So it's 13 lists and about 115 movies. <laughs> so <laughs> That sounds like you have an epic podcast in, in uh, line. Yeah, it's, it's going to be something along the lines of a lightning round to begin with. Um, Basically, things that end up on multiple lists, they get more time discussed, and then things that only end up on one list, we'll touch on briefly. But every single movie that gets sent to us, we we will talk about. So send your list to directorsclubpodcast at gmail.com just before, let's say, uh, October 25th. 
Um, and again, that list of uh, banned movies will be on the website. Just go to directorsclubpodcast.com uh, for that. That is all the business to take care of. Uh, um, Robert, let's go into what we watched this week. Hanging round the house Got nothing to do But watch a movie or two Put on Dracula Direction's kind of stiff But the ghosty is the tits Creature from the Black Lagoon And yeah, the Wolfman too you know just how I do. It's what we watched this week. It's what we watched this week. It's what we watched this week. Now it's time to speak about what we watched this week. So, Robert, we like to uh, start with the guest. Uh, other than Terrence Fisher movies, uh, what have you been watching recently? <laughs> oh, I just had a film festival. I had like a dozen uh, films that I could discuss. Um, well, it was just a Milwaukee Film Festival? Yeah, the Milwaukee Film Festival. Uh, they had uh, 276 movies over a two-week period. I obviously didn't see 276 movies, but I made the trek down there uh, often. So, uh, boy... Pick, picking one out of there is uh is is you, you, can, you can talk about a couple if you want to okay um why don't I toss out uh one of them uh why don't I toss out the imitation game because that played at the festival and that's certainly gonna get uh Oscar buzz um you can you can you can start by say, by not acknowledging that it's very Oscar baity um it certainly has a social issue it wants to examine and has emotional crescendos and uh, false crises to kind of propel the plot around along so i mean it it, it has i mean i don't i don't think it's if it gets nominated for best picture it shouldn't win but benedict cumberbatch is excellent uh as alan turing in it uh he he's smart like he always it plays but he's also kind of lonely and damaged and sensitive, so you kind of see a, a different side, uh, a less confident side from him than when he's playing Sherlock on TV, and he really knocks it out of the ballpark. And, you know, it, it is Oscar Beatty, but it is based more or less on a true story about uh, a guy that probably, if, if he didn't win World War II for the uh, Allies, he certainly played a major part in it. So it's, it actually has stakes and uh, some some tension, and and he had an effect on the world. So it's 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 a story that's worth telling, as well as what happened to him after the war, uh, when he was treated uh, shabbily because of our social hangups of the time. That actually makes it a pretty compelling story. Uh, what do you mean by social hangups of the time? Uh, Turing was a homosexual, who ah. who was uh, arrested after the war. Because uh, and never acknowledged that how he helped save Britain and basically was chemically castrated and he committed suicide about a year and a half after he was convicted of his uh, uh, homosexuality. Jesus Christ! 
<laughs> what? Oh, was, spoiler! That was, that, that, yeah, that was that was that was done. At, I didn't even know that was done at the time. That sounds medieval. It does, which is it, part of the point, I, I believe, of the of the movie to say. I mean, partly about how far we we've come in the last uh, sixty some years. I, I guess that's uh, why it's still kind of relevant. Well, I mean, obviously, it's kind of shooting fish in the barrel because it would never happen these days. But it's, right. it's still uh, acknowledging somebody that uh, contributed to the war. He, I mean, if you don't know Turing, he cracked the Enigma code. Uh, he basically created a, the world's first working computer to to crack the code. So he's he was like one of the genius, mathematical geniuses of of his era, and basically and and helped win the war. Basically, he was. Uh, uh, um, persecuted for his uh, personal uh proclivities is um so it does it yeah when you yeah it, it when you, you describe it as like shooting fish in a barrel i always think of that when uh the whenever there's movies about sort of segregation that take place around sports it's like the easiest thing in the world it's like can you believe that uh that that, that blacks and whites were not allowed to play football together and then uh and then the titans changed all that like that that's sort of yeah, like well yeah that's it's 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 an easy way to pat yourself on the back does those the it sounds like two very interesting but very kind of disparate stories his p- persecution after the war and his sort of success during the war is was there um does does the movie like thematically or any other way like tie those things together or does it just feel like all right the the espionage or the code cracking sort of uh, World War II thriller part has ended and now becomes the character drama. Um, no, I think they they do actually a pretty good job of bridging it. Um, Turing is is a basically a loner uh, during the war, having to keep secrets. Um, so and, and he trying to keep his secret after the war. So they kind of bridge it that way, uh, and and he 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 has difficulty connecting. They also throw in a, a, a pseudo love story with Kira Knightley uh, as uh, a, a woman he recruits to cold break with him. That they 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 have a relationship. Um, at one point, she becomes his fiance, but of course that doesn't uh, work out. Yeah, I, that, that's why I was surprised to hear that because I had seen the trailer for this, and it definitely made it seem like the the that it that the story was in that the film was in part going to be about the romance between those two. And I didn't know anything about uh, Alan Turing the man, so. Uh, so I was so I was surprised to hear that, but um, that that sounds interesting. Uh, what what other films have you seen? Um, I mean, I, I saw a couple classics. Man with a movie camera played at the film festival with Ally Orchestra. Uh, I I know that was recently named the greatest documentary ever by uh, Sight and Sound, and seeing it on the big screen is obviously a treat. I don't know if I'd call it the greatest documentary ever because I I think it's kind of lacking in content certainly it's a masterpiece of form and whenever you get a live orchestra uh to play with a silent movie it's always a a, a special event and there's also lots of energy in the room and how how many times do you see a thousand plus seat theater packed for a 1930 soviet silent avant-garde documentary oh well we have those on thursday nights over at the at the local amc <laughs> Uh, so that's i mean but i'm sure up in i'm sure up in milwaukee it's rare uh (laughs) i i I, so it was packed that's that's interesting to hear 
Yeah, I mean, the the whole festival was packed. They had, uh, I think, 60,000, 64,000, I believe, was the attendance this year, which is starting to push up to South by Southwest uh, size film festival. It, so, so a packed audience to see a movie like Man with the Movie Camera, which I, I've not seen Man with the Movie Camera. I'm vaguely aware of the kind of, it's, like you said, it's more sort of about form, uh and sort of capturing these uh, sort of astounding images rather than, uh, you know, documenting a specific subject or anything like that. Is this a, is this a movie with a lot of crowd reaction or is it, was it just weird to be in a theater full of that many people? There was crowd reaction in it. I mean, it, it certainly has, it, it has a little bit of sense of humor to it and certainly, uh, People react to the images, and there are some astounding images in Man with a Movie Camera. Uh, I mean, obviously, it's not—it's neither a comedy nor a drama, so it's kind of hard to to gauge how how people react to it. But it certainly you get some oohs and ahs occasionally on that, and it, it's it's a pretty fun movie if you've never seen it because it's it's cut in the Soviet montage style, so it's really click click quick cutting over the place. So it, it actually holds up to uh, modern attention spans and might even still surpass them. I mean, it was avant-garde in like 1930, and it's still avant-garde. I, it, it's basically like Koyan Katsi in, in some ways, as far as we don't really have uh, uh, much for content, but we certainly are going to uh, show you a way to look at the world. Uh, so in the, in the orchestra... Um, so, the, I, so this is a full orchestra. Because I've seen silent films... With with the, yeah. with an organist, oh, it, it, yeah. Well, this is Alley Orchestra, which is like a a three piece uh, band. Okay. They do concerts all over the uh, the country. But I mean, they they have like when they set up, they'll they'll have like a, a half a dozen, a dozen instruments and all sorts of percussion uh, devices set up. So they sound a lot fuller than they are. Sure. Uh, you have people running back and forth hitting. Playing different stuff. Um, oh, what else do you say? Uh, saw a special screening of uh, Top Secret with uh, Jerry Zucker and Jim Abrahams in attendance. Um, they showed a, a, a slightly altered cut of it. Uh, they've been re-showing it because it's the uh, 30th anniversary uh, since 1984 when it appeared. And they, they, they're playing with it. It's hard to tell... If it's a better movie, you're playing to uh, uh, the audience that wanted to see it anyhow, because uh, they're obviously fans. But it's but they 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 made some small, but I think smart changes to it. They uh, cut out the first part where uh, Val Kilmer basically introduces himself to the audience, basically uh, practicing in German of uh, "I want to fuck your daughter." Uh, gives your daughter eighteen. Like they cut out things like that, and they they kind of uh, made it a little more focused on the romance aspects. And they had a nice Q and A afterwards. Um, and of course, it was good to see Peter Cushing on the big screen. Cushing? Oh yeah, that's right. Cush- Who's Cushing playing? Top Secret. He he plays the Swedish bookshop. Oh, owner. that's right. Uh, and the uh, the shot there's one the opening shot with him in the magnifying glass looks remarkably like uh, a shot in Curse of Frankenstein. So I asked them about it in the Q and A afterwards, and both uh, Jerry and Jim said it's pure coincidence. It's that's interesting. I wonder. 
There was a third. There was a third involved, though, right? Yeah, David Zucker couldn't make it. Yeah, so maybe David Zucker knows. David Zucker probably snuck that. That seems like a David Zucker <laughs> sort of a thing. God, I I don't know if I wouldn't. I've I've seen Top Secret like maybe twice. Um, I like the movie a lot, but I'm not so familiar with it. Like, were there deleted scenes that were added, or like the? Re- I don't know if I would notice a recut of Top Secret. Yeah, I mean they they didn't nip out a whole lot, but they they nipped out a little bit of the uh, introduction. They they nipped out the uh Polaris mind gag where they drag a U-boat into uh the underground bunker or the prison. Uh they nipped out uh uh the goodbye scene where she says goodbye to the scarecrow at the end and they kind of just cut from they did insert one shot of a fireplace so there's kind of like they start kissing and it pans to the fireplace and they the plane takes off at the end. So it's minor little things here and there. Um, is this but, is this like this new cut is going to be part of a new like 30th anniversary release or they're just doing this for the hell of it. They're just doing it for the hell of it. They said there's, there's probably no money in it because top secret bombed when it was released. And it's certainly been a cult hit, especially on cable. It has some of their best, best gags, but it doesn't have the driving narrative that airplane does. And I, I, it never really caught on beyond, beyond the cult, even though it is, it has, uh, as I said, it has some of their, their best gags and it's Val Kilmer's first, film yeah that that swedish bookstore one is the one i always think of that's it's honestly pretty much the only joke i can remember for sure uh and except for the opening with skeet skeet surfing <laughs> yeah i mean skeet surfing you remember the pinto gag no i don't remember the pinto no, gag. where they where the they shoot out the tire of the german uh soldiers instead of going over the cliff they kind of tap the bumper of a pinto which explodes oh okay yeah i mean i i God, Pinto Gag was one of those things where I was born in 1987, and I I have awareness of a lot of cultural events of the mid to late mid 80s to like early 90s, not because I was conscious of culture at that at, at that age, but because I have watched enough SNL and Simpsons and stuff from that era. And Pinto is just one of those touch – like people will just make a Pinto joke. They'll make a Joey Buttafuoco joke and they will make a Pinto joke. <laughs> yeah, Pinto and a Gremlin joke. Yeah, yeah. There's probably a Pinto joke in like uh, an episode of The Critic or something like that. <laughs> and that's and that's where I, I know that from. I God. Yeah, it's weird thinking about that because in elementary school, I would be making jokes about things where I didn't actually know the context – I just knew them as comedy shorthand, and when you're just little, you just repeat things. Mm-hmm. So I would just, yeah, I would, I, I in third grade as like a seventh grader or whatever, I would probably just be making Pinto jokes, <laughs> like, oh yeah, and then they crash in the back, of, and then they tap the back of a Pinto, and the Pinto explodes, <laughs> which is just like probably me ripping off a joke from The Simpsons or whatever. But I wouldn't even know, yeah, the basis of that. That's weird. Uh, Topsy, is that a? So that was sort of a. Because I, that's, I mean, that's something I always associate with one of, one of the Abrams took over the scary movie franchise for a little bit. Yeah. I mean, this is, this is their direct follow up to airplane. They, they gave all the money right. with airplane. They could do whatever they want. And they wanted to do kind of a Elvis Presley musical slash espionage movie. Yeah. But like, so, but airplane, airplane didn't have a lot of like just contemporary pop culture jokes in it. Did it? Cause I feel like that was the thing that just sort of ended up wearing everything down was, I mean, 
No. I mean, you eventually get to the Seltzer Friedberg kind of epic movie, disaster movie, or whatever. It's literally just like Juno, and then Juno gets punched in the face, and then there's Hunger Games, and then Hunger Games gets farted on, like, and then there's Twilight, and then Twilight pukes, and on Snooky. Like, it's just sort of the laziest kind of pop culture mashups this side of uh, uh, internet t shirts. Um, yeah, I, even when they're making pop culture jokes, they usually have something going on in the background or uh, to to make it still there's a gag in there even if you don't get the joke. I mean, I, I think that's the defining characteristics of the Zucker Abraham Zucker movies is that there's always something. There's, there's more than one gag going on all the time, a lot of them visual, uh, just, just so that... They're not relying on one thing in any scene. They just pack the uh, the screen full of uh, verbal or 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 uh, visual. So uh, even if the 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 verbal joke isn't working, there's usually something going on in the background that's funny. I, <laughs> my mind is blown right now because I'm just I'm thinking back when you said, "Oh yeah," and they emphasize the romance. I'm trying to think like if if I watched Naked Gun and it was a different kind of Naked Gun than I had always seen. But what was changed wasn't that there were more jokes or less jokes or whatever, but they just sort of changed story beats. I don't think I would notice at all. That seems like such a weird thing to monkey around with 30 years later. Like, do they do they give a lot of explanation to why they're doing this in the first place? Um, not at the film festival, but I believe that when they had they showed it again at San Francisco, they were kind of thought that um, a that there there really is no narrative driving narrative to kind of push the story along. And the the romance is something they can actually hang on because it it actually plays out at the beginning, middle, and end of the film, while the uh, while the uh, espionage plot kind of goes here and there and uh, is wrapped up. And uh, at some point, I mean, it, it's a musical, it's a spy film, it's a French Resistance movie. Uh, it, it's a take on Casablanca at points. I mean, have an underwater saloon fight. In it, so it's it's tough to kind of hang those all together, except for you have uh, Val Kilmer and Lucy Gutenberg there in the uh, beginning, there at the middle, and there at the end. So I, I think that's that was the, the one thread that they thought they could uh, just tie it together on, and and they wanted to make uh, it more about uh, Val Kilmer and Lucy Gutenberg just because it's uh, it make them more likable was was the idea there. I mean, one of the other things they caught, I don't remember, you probably don't remember it, but the, the film starts out with a, a train fight with Omar Sharif on top of a train. That was the other thing they cut out, too, right. so they get to Val Kilmer a little quicker. God, that's weird. I mean, I'm sh- I, I'm, I'm not, like, second-guessing. I'm sure the changes they made uh, tightened up the story. It doesn't, it doesn't sound like you enjoyed it less. No, I, I, I mean, I, I think it was probably a, a slightly better movie. Um, I mean, they certainly didn't add runtime to it, so that's that's usually a good good thing for comedy if you can tighten it up and yeah. still keep the same gags per minute going. That's that's usually a good thing. But it's and it's I guess that's just what they're doing. Like I like their career, they don't really they're not working anymore, really, right? Like they're not working in television or anything. I mean, I'm pretty sure if you created Naked Gun and you created Airplane. And you did all these other movies that just the residuals from those playing on cable for the rest of your life. <laughs> like I'm sure they, I'm sure they're 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 doing fine financially or whatever. I'm sure they are too. I mean, they're 
I mean, they're still working a little bit, but I mean, they're doing uh, Wisconsin tourism uh, ads on TV, basically parodying uh, or using Kareem Abdul-Jabbar and Robert Hayes uh, piloting over Wisconsin right now. So they're obviously not too busy. Are they from Wisconsin? Is that I mean, is that why they're at the Milwaukee Film Festival? Is they're local boys or? Yeah, yeah, they're they're local boys. They're from Shorewood, oh, and- which is on the north northeast side of Milwaukee. God, that's weird. That's so weird. Like, uh, I mean, their sensibilities are very Midwest. It's not weird that they come from Milwaukee or weird that they would want to return there once sort of their time in Hollywood was up. But, like, it's just weird to think about because they're so – they are – like, I can't imagine ever um, Judd Apatow ever just being like, well, I sort of had my time and then my movies fizzled out or whatever – and now I'm going to do a tourism board for wherever wherever Judd Apatow. I like I, I don't know if he's from I don't know where he's from, but like like Judd Apatow just seems like oh yeah no he's going to be produ- he's going to be Ivan Reitman he's going to be pro- when he can't direct movies anymore he's going to be producing like comedies till the day he dies because he's just so in Hollywood and I guess they were just sort of they weren't no I mean they they they, they started out at the Kentucky Fried Theater I think started out at, when they were students at uh, University of Wisconsin in Madison and then that kind of led them to Hollywood. So they're 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 very midwestern and local boys and actually I don't know what how what Apatel's signature visual look would be to do an ad while they can milk their <laughs> the visual gags of airplane probably for a while. But my fir- the first thing that came to my head is getting Seth Rogen and Paul Rudd back uh in the in those chairs they sit in in 40-year-old virgin during the you know how I know you're gay scene. Which I I don't know what you could advertise, like maybe maybe once culture comes around enough that no I there's no way no that's not gonna happen. Oh Apatow, I mean Apatow just a doesn't have a signature visual look. I mean Zaz they were good at reproducing sort of the low production values of uh you know of cop shows on uh Police Squad or you know the disaster movies in Airplane. Like they at least I wouldn't say like oh yeah they're really great uh, directors but they certainly uh, when they were trying to do a very specific thing they they could achieve it I actually I can't recall is that true of Top Secret is it Top Secret look like an Elvis movie or does Top Secret kind of just look like uh, Hot Shots or any other sort of comedy like that I mean the, the the musical numbers are are well done and I don't I haven't seen a whole lot of Elvis movies so I couldn't tell you what a Elvis movie looks. Looks like, sure. but you, you can tell it by the same same guys that did uh, Airplane. They have people entering the frame from funny angles, and 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 uh, they they keep the the gags moving. There's foreground gags and background gags, so it's. I mean, they they have fun with visual with movie grammar. I mean, that's kind of what what they do, or what they did now. So um, instead of copying it, they were kind of saying, okay, here's here's how it would be doing an old movie, and we're just gonna have fun with yeah, it. Yeah, I. I... I guess the the Judd Apatow comparison also doesn't work because Judd Apatow does what they did, what they're doing with Top Secret now, but he does that for like five months before he releases a movie, <laughs> which is he just has endless test screenings, uh, where because he shoots he shoots as if he's going to make a five hour movie, and then he does endless test screenings where he tightens things up. Yeah, well, I mean, t- test screenings for comedy is probably the smart way to go about it because you don't know what's gonna be funny and into the audience 
first what's going to crack you up when you're uh, sitting in the editing room or on set. Yeah, oh god, I can imagine being in an editing room and seeing the same take, the same jokes over and over again. That just being so deadening. <laughs> like, yeah, I mean, I, I you you always hear about uh, you know, people like us who want to support the artist, right? Against the studios. We you always hear about the the terror of test screenings where everything ends up being watered down and shittier. But yeah, like uh, there are some good stories about test screenings. You know, like or Spielberg saw a test screening of Jaws and the the, the part in where Hooper's underwater, uh, and and the head comes popping out of the boat. It's like he thought, oh no, I uh, that didn't get as big a scream as it should have. I should re-edit that, and he just changed it a little bit, and then that ends up being still to this day one of the scariest moments in any movie. So yeah, uh, test screenings can be good. Mm-hmm. I think. Yeah. I don't. I mean, the test screenings are usually a means to an end. I guess the. <laughs> I guess the Zucker. I guess these guys. I don't know what they're doing. Like enjoying their uh, their lap, their uh, golden years, probably. Yeah, it's, it's you don't. Yeah, the same way I guess George Lucas did. Uh, <laughs> I mean, I don't have a have a problem with them messing around with a a film. George Lucas can mess around with Star Wars for all he wants to. I I don't have a problem. He made it. He can do what he wants with it, and just as long as you give me the chance to watch the original, I don't care. I mean, maybe, maybe there's a good, good uh, re-edit of Star Wars. Yeah, in there. I mean, well, it, it's it's good that Zaz. It's good that those guys never got uh, any proceeds from the uh, from the toy sales from Airplane. Otherwise, they their egos they would have just had too much money, and their egos would have been through the roof, and we would have seen more sequels to Airplane and Naked Gun now and they would and they would have gone back and monkeyed with all with airplane and <laughs> the part where uh the part where you see the tail sort of going through it looked kind of shoddy it would be all cgi and it would be any good um i went to a film festival too uh robert oh what which film festival i was went this? to the music box of horrors um which is a 24-hour horror film festival it's usually my it's my favorite thing every year and the i mean this um, actually, it used to be run by this one group called Terror in the Isles, and then they had a falling out with the Music Box Theater, um, I suppose. So now Music Box Theater does their own 24-hour horror film festival, and Terror in the Isles does their own, um, and they're, they're uh, one weekend right after the other, and I'm going to both. So <laughs> I so I just I – just, Saturday and Sunday, I was at the Music Box of Horrors. And then uh, this coming Saturday and Sunday, I'm going to be at the Massacre, which is Terror in the Isles 24 hour horror film festival. So I'm I'm depriving myself of all kinds of sleep uh, <laughs> in in the name of uh, thrills and chills. But um, so Music Box of Horrors is usually my favorite thing every year. It's just fun. They they ramp it up where they start with a silent film and then they go to older movie and then they they slowly increase and it's like a silent film and then a movie from the 30s and a movie from the 40s. And the movie from the 50s or 60s, and then they start getting contemporary movies. And then by the time you hit, hit like 2, 3 a.m., they're just playing crazy psychotronic stuff that you're – and you're half asleep for. And you wake up and you fall asleep and you wake up and you, you don't know what part of the movies you saw and which part of the movies you were, you dreamed. Uh, that happened with me uh, uh, catching glimpses of the movie Shockma. <laughs> <laughs> which sounds like the perfect uh, 3 a.m. movie. Oh, it's great! It's 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 larping. 
uh, and it's a it's a fucking angry baboon. That baboon <laughs> is the angriest thing I've ever seen. I can't say I saw Shakma because I only saw maybe forty five minutes of it scattered here and there. But what I saw of it, it's the angriest. It, it's actually like legitimately intense mm. uh, when that when that baboon goes crazy. And apparently the way the way they did it was they just had a female baboon in heat on the other side of like a door, oh. and then he would just go. And then he would just literally go ape shit and start pounding on the door and trying to break it down. So there's just endless shots of him freaking out and slamming on doors. Um, and, and because they had a female in heat on the other side, there's also more than a couple shots in which you see his baboon erection, <laughs> which is like they try to cut around it, but you can't cut around it. I I am surprised they actually got a, a real baboon and not the guy in a suit. No, oh my no, it's it's real. I it's. That sounds like something special. It, it is. It is something special, and it's on Netflix Instant. So I'm going to talk briefly about some of the films I watch. I'm not going to do a lightning round or anything. Um, now they always start with the silent film, which is hard because there's only so many silent horror movies that you can get prints of, and they've been doing this. This the, this was the 10th anniversary, so a lot of the times they'll get sort of horror adjacent silent films sure like they got uh lon cheney's hunchback of notre dame which has great makeup and has some scenes of cruelty and some cool special effects and stuff but you can't really call hunchback of notre dame a horror story no um and so in this case they got the phantom carriage which is actually closer to like a christmas carol than i think technically christmas carol is a ghost story but the phantom carriage it's it's more of like a fairy tale or a fable um, yeah it's this i i know it's one of ingmar bergman's uh influences yeah it, well i mean it's it's a it's a really good movie it's it's fascinating how it, the movie is from the 20s and uh, and it's from 20 1921 and and the structure of it is super modern where there's flashbacks within flashbacks and there's stories being told within stories and there are characters and you know the characters are related but you don't find out what these characters ought to do with each other until the end it's actually like a 21 grams or a, like an, uh, I don't know how to pronounce that director's name, Aratu, um, sort of a film in that way where it's, it's sort of these stories that kind of merge at the end. Um, and it ends up being sort of a preachy. It's not like the evilness all comes from, uh, the main character's alcoholism, which is whatever, <laughs> like it's, it's from the twenties and I guess prohibition was just sort of on people's minds at the time. Um, but like literally alcohol is all the evils of man, uh, is blamed on, uh, their consumption of alcohol. It's a direct link. And it's, it's kind of, it's, it's kind of rickety in that way in which, I mean, you know, you got, you got to take it for the time it came out, but you watch something like the grand illusion, the grand illusion just feels like as powerful as it yeah. ever did. Grand illusion doesn't feel old fashioned. Um, so Phantom Carriage was cool. It has some really neat, uh, Special effects where they do ghost effects by superimposing uh, one image over the other, and they kind of create ghosts that way, and they do some really interesting stuff with that. So I'd definitely say it's worth seeing. Uh, maybe, maybe like towards December, I would say. <laughs> see it? It's, it's it feels more like a December oh, movie. I mean, it's actually a, a New Year's Eve yeah. movie. I know it's out in Criterion. Uh, have you seen Haxon? Uh no, I still have to see Haxon. That's okay. I'm gonna try to I'm gonna try to watch that this month. I mean, I'm gonna, I'm doing a lot of things this month, but. One of the things I want to do is see Haxon. Yeah. Yeah, the Scandinavians are certainly an interesting lot. Yeah, apparently. Um, I saw Cat People, which I loved. Uh, yeah, Cat I People's mean, great. 
How, how does the Luton bus work with a full audience? Uh, it's at. It, there were no gasps or shocks or anything. Uh, I don't. I mean, then again, you you go to a horror film festival, you get you get a bunch of seasoned horror people in the audience. They're more appreciative than they are scared. Um, there's occasional yeah. moment like if a movie has less scene and it's really well made, then there are moments that will, you know, a jump when it will shock people and they'll get frightened. Um, and certainly, like audition was the closing movie of uh, of this of this music box of horrors. And that movie, it, it was clear people had not seen it because once the infamous scene at the end of audition happens, there was a lot of squirming and gasping and and screaming and stuff. But uh, I can say on the big screen, those work brilliantly. In fact, it's almost like a – so it, it's, it's sort of the famous anecdote where it's like the Lawrence of Arabia, the most famous scene in Lawrence of Arabia where there's just that dot on the horizon that slowly grows. Um, is it, that yep. that's the scene that you can't see on TV <laughs> when they right. play it on TV because it's just it, you you can't make it out. And the same thing with the pool scene in Cat People is I never actually saw that they actually do have the shadow of a panther uh, in the pool scene. I always just saw you know you see very vague shadows, um, and it's a lot of very clever editing and you know and. And the idea is that wherever the camera's pointed, um, the panther has already moved away from, and you hear a noise, and then the character looks the opposite direction, and they're always just missing it, and they're just seeing sort of the shadow. But if you look uh, carefully, in certain shots, you can actually see, like, the more distinct outline of a panther, which I always thought just wasn't there. I always thought it was pure editing. But there is just the tiniest glimpse of something more specific, which I had never seen before then. Yeah, I, I've seen. I wonder if that's from the the Leopard Man. Perhaps they they maybe use the same panther from there. Certainly had the panther on set for the zoo sequences. Um, I've I've seen. Uh, I walk with a zombie on the big screen, and it's really effective. But I mean, obviously, I think it, it depends if you have a jaded audience or a newbie audience uh, on how effective. Yeah, it is. I mean, I, I think Cat People works well just because. I think walk, I walked with the zombie is really interesting thematically, but its story is essentially Jane Eyre. So it's 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 yeah. too complicated to be like a really effective horror movie. You know what I mean? Whereas Cat People, it, it has, has to have kind of a complicated complicated plot with you know sort of interesting characters and stuff, but it has the more base level sort of thrills and and scenes of suspense and stuff like that. Um, sure. I mean, you have a you have an angry woman at the center of it. That that's always a good hook to hang on. Sure, but but what's great is she's a victim as much as I mean, that's the one. Like, so the I mean, the funny thing about Cat People is if you don't know anything about Val Luton, basically RKO Studios, the people who made Citizen Kane, and actually Cat People was shot on leftover sets from uh, Orson Welles' Magnificent Ambersons. Um, so. Uh, but basically, RKO Studios, they wanted to capture Universal's success with horror films. So they went to one of the producers, uh, Val Luton, and they would give him a title and a, and a sort of a poster. And, he would, and then he would have complete creative control after that. And Val Luton being who he was, they would give him these absurd titles like Cat People or The Leopard Man or I Walked with a Zombie. And he would turn out these very complex, rich, emotional, uh, sort of, uh, you know, strong, strongly thematic stories about people where horror was sort of in the periphery. 
um, kind of even the the one that's I would say closest to just a straight ahead horror movie would be like Isle of the Dead, um, and that that kind of it kind of predates Cabin Fever, but it does the same thing in which uh, people are sort of stuck in one place and there's a plague and everyone's afraid of it and they they panic over who's catching it and um it's all about sort of that uh sickness hysteria but most of those movies are nothing like uh are nothing like what you think of when you think of a horror film so it's it's always fun to watch uh Val <laughs> Luton movies cuz you can sort of guess what the studio had in mind when they gave him the project and what resulted is always so different yeah i i, I was certain when they they uh pitched uh the cat people they were thinking something like the wolfman yeah exactly and it is something like the wolfman uh to to be fair like it is about someone who changes in to a monster but the thing is it's unlike i mean i, I haven't seen the wolfman in a while to be fair but i don't recall i remember it being it sort of had mostly being a story about uh, Lon Chaney Jr.'s character, uh, his, uh, his issues with his father. And, you know, at the end, his father ends up being the one that kills the wolf with a silver cane. And it's sort of a ironic moment. But it's not necessarily a thematically rich film by any means, or to, to my recollection. No. Whereas Cat People is sort of essentially the same thing where it's about someone who's transforming into this monster or not even the monster just this animal but a you know a deadly big cat but what it's actually a story about is a story about sort of repression and sexuality and 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 fear and um commitment and what it's and sort of it's and it, it switches between you know uh simone simon is the woman is the titular cat person um and it sort of switches between her point of view and the guy who she marries his point of view uh as just sort of being a spouse of someone with this in his mind mental illness and sort of the toll it takes on their relationship <laughs> and like it explores these things with a maturity that you just would not expect from the 40s ever like it's not that melodramas hadn't been this mature um, th- at this time, but melodramas in which one person turns into an animal and attacks things <laughs> certainly would not be this mature. No, it, it, it's a very mature movie. I mean, Universal Films went went much for for the kids in the forties. While this uh, ba- is basically pitched for adults, and it, I think it holds up better over time. So, uh, real real quick, I'm going to go over a few other ones. Uh, I saw Curse of the Werewolf, but we'll talk about that when we talk about uh, Terrence Fisher. It's a beautiful movie on the big screen. Um, you know, uh, I saw The Borrower, which is a John McNaughton movie. John McNaughton, most famous for doing Henry Portrait of a Serial Killer. But in 1991, I think he did a movie for Canon Films uh, called The Borrower, which is about an alien who lands to Earth and his head keeps exploding. <laughs> so he has to take other people's heads. Which is just a, the dumbest, great, a great dumb premise, and it's just a it's a fun action sci-fi horror movie where he's just wandering around this city, his head exploding, and then he rips off someone else's head, and then he walks around with that person's head for a while, and then that head explodes. It's it's really silly, but what was, what was fascinating about it was that uh, 
there was no available film prints of this film. It was a very, it had a very limited theatrical run. Um, and it, it's not even on DVD. So what, what we watched was John McNaughton's personal laser disc <laughs> of the borrower projected, uh, on the big screen projected from his personal laser disc player, <laughs> which they also didn't have. So, um, so, you know, we watched on Laserdisc, which is certainly not up to snuff with the, what you expect even from like a DVD quality. But uh, it was interesting to to watch something. You knew that you it, – it's the same sort of – it's it actually captured the same sort of thing that you can feel when you watch even a bad print of – like a bad 35-millimeter print of a movie, which is just this history – which is when you when you watch a, a whole, uh, like sort of an exploitation movie on thirty five millimeter and it's all sort of grimy and pink, and like the color is tinted pink and it's all scratched up, it's it sucks because you're not it doesn't look very good, but it, it's also kind of cool because you're kind of like oh yeah this is probably the exact same film that played at a drive in yeah <laughs> you know like and it kind of has that vibe and then watching the laser disc actually had the same thing because like you just thought about this laser disc sitting in John McNaughton's home. Do I have to make confession that I still have my Laserdisc player? You still have your Laserdisc player? I still do. What 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 Laserdiscs? What do you keep it around for other than uh, nostalgia? What what do you have on Laserdisc that you do, you can't give up? Um, Wells's Othello. Uh, I don't think is out on DVD yet, or if it is, I can't find it. Um, and there's there's a couple ones I just don't want to get rid of. Uh, the original Star Wars. Oh sure. Uncut. <laughs> But but that's that's about it. I don't I don't think I've used it in in years, but I still have it and it still works. Yeah, I had a, I had an aunt who had a laserdisc player, and so I whenever I would stay over at her house, I'd watch laserdisc and I would watch laserdiscs. Like I watched Terminator. That was the first time I saw Terminator Two was on laserdisc, and I was just fascinated by it. They had the they had the final yeah. episode of Star Trek: The Next Generation on laserdisc. It's <laughs> 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 just it's it's this. It's this like hodgepodge of weird, outdated home video things, where it's like the, I, this giant thing that looks like a CD, but uh, is the size of a record, is outdated, and then it's oh yeah, they used to sell individual episodes of television shows. Man, that must have been expensive. for like thirty. Yeah, it would be like thirty nine ninety nine. Yeah, I, I I spent my first paycheck on a laserdisc player. Oh man, that's beautiful. That's beautiful, Robert. Uh, <laughs> So that was that was that was cool. It's not a it's not a great. I'm not saying like it's a lost classic and it needs to be brought back on Blu-ray or whatever. But it it's a fun movie. Yeah, um, and at a marathon, you're not going to get all classics. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I got I got to see Herzog's Nosferatu, which is really good. But as the sixth movie in a twelve movie marathon, uh, it was like it's too slow. Yeah, you, you needed something more fast paced. Um, it, it's really good though. It it, it emphasizes yeah. all the things that make Murnau's. Nosferatu interesting. Uh, yeah, it has, a, it has a good ending too. Oh my god, it's a great ending. It's just, it's just, yeah, it's just a little slow paced. Um, I saw Dead Snow two, which I guess is being released soon. Um, I haven't seen the first Dead Snow, but Dead Snow two is actually a very competent, uh, at times inspired uh, uh, horror comedy film, uh, which I, I wasn't expecting to like it at all because it's just the gimmick of oh Nazi zombies waka 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 and. Like in this one, he uh, – the protagonist from the first Dead Snow calls upon help from a group of dorks who claim they're zombie experts. But really they're just dorks obsessed with zombies. And that kind of was like, oh boy, and this feels like pandering and it kind of has this – it kind of involves like – it brings more rules to the magic 
uh, <laughs> of of dead of like all right and then here are the things these zombies can do and here's what they're after and here's another group of zombies and it, it just kind of feels like comic booky yeah uh in a way that's not appealing to me which but as far as those things go it's actually well done there's some really good gags in it um there's some it, it, was, a, it was a fun movie to watch with the crowd because there's a lot of moments where uh there's one moment in particular where i was like oh you got to be shitting me where it just felt like the most pandering <laughs> thing ever and then that that sequence, that scene ends uh, in a way that totally undercuts it all, and it makes it totally fixes it. So, you know, yeah, Dead Snow Two was was fun. I enjoyed it. And then at this point, I was fading in and out of consciousness. So I saw Nightmares of a Damaged Brain, which is a weird, grimy kind of exploitation movie. Um, it was a video nasty. It's super graphic. There's there's a decapitation in it. You see like fifteen times throughout the movie. And they show the blood spurting out of the neck hole in like like seventy two frames per second. <laughs> just that, just that like nice, just that sort of bubbling liquid look uh, of really old film. Uh, I mean, of of that just old kind of slow motion where they just yeah, where it's where because they're shooting at such a high frame rate, they also everything is super well lit. Uh, so it's just this like pristine beautiful image of red liquid bubble it like it's so slow that you don't like the suspension of disbelief is gone it just looks like a prosthetic like it looks like a gag it looks like you're at the k&b warehouse and they're showing you a gag but it's so great that it, you don't mind uh and it has a weird sort of structure where uh everything is it's it's about this kid who kills his father and someone else uh when he's a kid and then like 15, 20 years later or whatever, he's released from the mental hospital on medication and he said he's been fixed. And then it's structured where there's chapter breaks and where it breaks up the first night and the second night. And it's like counting the nights he's out of out of the asylum. And then at the end of the movie, it's final night. So you know that some shit's going to go down. It was kind of an interesting structure, but I didn't see enough of it uh, to say more. Shakma is crazy. Because again, the baboon, and it's about <laughs> LARPers, which is which is you don't expect from a movie from the late '80s, early '90s. Uh, I, I think it was just recently that there was like some sort of horror action comedy about LARPers that. Uh, but that with the one with Dinklage in it that was supposedly yeah. bad. I can't remember what it's called. I I heard mixed things about it. I don't know if it's bad, but uh, I th- I think it's zero charisma or something like that. I thought that was the other one, but it, I, there was a couple of them. But I, I, I know the the Dinklage one is not supposed to be very good. <laughs> well, at, at, at any rate, Shockma has them all beat, and none of them have a, a baboon's erection <laughs> on, to to be found. Which in my case, like, why are you making a LARPing movie if you're not going to show a, a, an aroused, furious baboon? Um. So anyway, Shockma was pretty crazy. Um. Uh, I think there was uh, what was there's one other movie I'm forgetting that I saw part of, oh don't go in the basement which I saw the least of that's a weird what I saw of it it just kind of felt like a weird exploitation movie where it's it's kind of like that spider va- spider baby vibe where it's just and here's a bunch of crazy people acting crazy and they're all fucking sick in the head and isn't that crazy but it didn't really have from like the 15 minutes I saw it didn't have the wit of spider baby um, uh, I saw Dead Just Before Dawn, which is a early slasher movie that was fun. It takes place in the woods. Um, and then I saw 
kind of saw a little bit of audition, but again, at that point I was kind of passing out. Um, audition was fun to see on the big screen. Uh, it wasn't necessarily a really pristine print, so I can't say like, oh, it was a revelation seeing it on the big screen. Also, Takashi Miike moves, makes movies so quickly that his movies, they don't look bad, but they're not known for their beauty. No, I have, I, I, I haven't seen a Takashi Miike film. I mean, I've seen, uh, I've, I've seen the audition, probably the most famous scene on the Bravo's the hundredth greatest, uh, what scariest moments or whatever it yeah. was. Oh, you haven't seen it. You, so you haven't seen audition. I, I know what it is, but uh, I have not seen it. But it's one on the I, I need to catch up on. It, well, it's too bad you had auditions spoiled for you because I do think that not seeing the ending coming, as even though it's a little slow, um, it the movie has an integrity to it. Like we'll be like Terrence, Terrence Fisher movies where the, the characters are strong enough and the story is strong enough that it doesn't feel like. A just random what the fuck moment when the ending happens, but it also takes you by surprise. It feels like a really, really well earned surprise. And, yeah, and it's, I mean, I, I've seen I've seen the Wicker Man after I've had the ending ruined. So if it works, it works. Is, is yeah. my uh, opinion on it. And if you're not even if you're not into crazy transgressive movies, there's some good Takashi Miike movies like uh, Thirteen Assassins. They're worth seeing. Uh, yeah, auditions a. Uh, I I always forget how audition ends, and it's because I can't make head or tails of how audition ends. <laughs> I don't want to go into more than that. But basically, there's a there is a point at which you I become unaware of which layer of reality is a is a delusion and which layer of reality is real. Um, and that's and that's when the movie ends. Uh, and it it's a really interesting movie. I think. If you're going to watch one Takashi Miike movie for October, like as a horror movie, I would say watch The Box. Uh, watch his segment of uh, Three Extremes. Um, that to me is just kind of a perfect nightmare um, in kind of weird, uncanny ways that are that it's hard to put into words. Uh, it also has an ending <laughs> that is very odd and confusing. But it feel like the whole thing kind of feels like a dream, so it kind of works, uh, or it feels more coherent. Not that the not that it audition. I mean, one of the remarkable things about audition, one of the reasons it's such a modern classic, is because it manages to go from one extreme to another, um, where while remaining tonally consistent and where, with keeping the story making sense relative sense there are still things that are just uh, indescribable and unexplainable but like it it it's it, it feels very coherent um but the, yeah i mean reputation wise it's still probably one of the top three or four uh horror movies since uh 1999 yeah no for sure it's it, and it and it, it's a well-earned reputation um though again at that point I don't know why they chose to program audition at the end because at that point I'm so exhausted. I, uh, I couldn't, I couldn't really like that slow burn. I couldn't appreciate it. Um, also didn't, also didn't help my exhaustion is so generally, you know, um, in addition to films, they'll play, uh, short horror films. They'll play like short horror comedy, like sketches. They'll play a music video. Maybe they'll, they'll a lot help 
uh, sort of a healthy dose of uh, vintage trailers from uh, horror exploitation sci-fi films. Um, And that is generally how the music box of horrors operates. And that sort of stuff acts as interstitial stuff. And it's just fun little oddities that, again, it's fun to see that kind of stuff in a theater and in that context. It adds to the whole atmosphere. Um, This year, everything is terrible. Handed the interstitials. Are you aware of Everything is Terrible, Robert? I, I am not. You have to explain them to me. So Everything is Terrible is – I don't know if they're a they're a film production company or a, a video distribution company or if they're just uh, sort of video artists. But basically they find footage, whether it's in obscure – uh, like obscure Z-grade movies that only released on VHS or whether it's in stuff that's even more obscure than that, like things that were never released at all. They just uh, – like or like weird industrials and stuff. They basically just take cult oddities. Um, there's like uh, – a, a famous one is uh, they took a video during the height of the Beanie Baby craze and they <laughs> – and in it was a video about like maintaining Beanie Babies and how to maintain Beanie Babies' value and how to tell their value and and explaining about all the new hot Beanie Babies coming out. It was basically just like a bullshit videotape that was made to cash in on the Beanie Baby craze. Um, and they they took that video and then they re-edited it so that uh, you just heard the word Beanie over and over and over again. Every instance of the word Beanie in this Beanie Baby tape. Just over and over and over again, and they kind of had that sensibility where their their humor is kind of obnoxious and off putting, like in the way that Tim and Eric's is. Um, if you ever seen that show, have not, but I, I I get I can picture it. So they so they take these kind of oddities and instead of just like presenting them, they kind of re edit them to heighten their weirdness, and they present that. And the they frequently make online videos, and they made a, a feature film that was nothing but a mishmash of clips. Um, and they have events. They're based in Chicago, so they have tons of Chicago events. They have a, I believe, a monthly thing where they play uh, Lifetime movies uh, in a theater, uh, and they have uh, local comedians sort of riff over them, and that can be fun. But like, there's it's sort of just like trash culture, uh, weirdly re-edited to be this kind of off-putting, aggressively obnoxious other thing. So they handed the interstitials. For the music box of horrors, and it kind of ruined the tone of the whole event for me, because instead of it being about sort of this history of horror films and this history of film, and like, wow, that's a thirty-five millimeter print of Cat People, and that, and we got to hear a live organ accompaniment for the Phantom Carriage, and just sort of feeling that history and all of these different sensibilities, and just realizing like, oh wow, like within the past twenty four hours, the, the the variety between the difference between Shakma and Cat people and we call that the same genre like it's fucking nuts and it's it, it, it's it's and you see all these trailers and it's just a wonderful celebration of sort of cult and genre uh, films and then the because everything is terrible is what it is it kind of pushed a very ironic tone over everything where everything is terrible doesn't care about film history <laughs> you never watch an everything terrible video and you think oh yeah these people are real cinephiles like, they find obscure movies, but you don't get the idea that they find obscure movies looking for art. They look at they look for trash, which is, you know, that's what they do, and a lot of people love it, and they are very good. As far as that goes, they're good at it, so, you know, whatever. But in that context of this festival, it really just poisoned the whole thing. 
Um, and they would just do really obnoxious. Like there was one that was 20 minutes of clips of like five or sec- six second clips of people breaking through windows just throughout all these. And it was kind of funny for a while. Like for the first – Yeah, 20 minutes. Uh, it, it probably minutes. wasn't tw- – it felt like 20 minutes just because it was so loud yeah. and you, you started to get a headache. But like – but it was a it was a sort of thing where it's like yeah like or a couple of minutes in you're like oh yeah that was funny like oh it's funny how a lot of these scenes they show they fall they crash through the window and then they land on a car or like you'd see a bunch a couple of those in a row and you'd see motifs and it became interesting but then it just kept going and going and going and eventually it almost felt like they were trolling the audience to what end I don't know like there was another one where it was a clip from some chopsaki martial arts film where these two were shooting la- – uh, these two uh, – an old man and old woman were shooting laser eyes at each other. And so they just keep shooting these laser eyes back and forth and it was the same like 25 seconds of footage looped. And this time it was for sure like it was, it was the same 25 seconds of laser eyes looped for like 15 minutes. Um, yeah, that's and, trolling. <laughs> and, that, and it was just – yeah, it was just pure trolling and I don't know what to, to what end and it was – like it was kind of funny, and then it kind of became the sideshow Bob Rake thing, where it was like, "Oh, this isn't funny," and then it became funny again. But then it just kept going, and it was so irritating. And when you're already sleep deprived, <laughs> and you're already sort of edgy, and you just it made it it made the experience a lot more grueling. Um, it was also a lot of the times it was also just now because they had so much stuff they were showing. There was less time in which there was nothing being projected on the screen, which is which it kind of ruins it because part of the fun of of the music box is they have a curtain that goes over the screen and in right and they have the curtain over the screen and the curtains raise before the projector starts. Uh, sure. There's no pre there's no show pre roll or anything like that, but because everything is terrible was doing these so many of these clips, there was just less time where the screen was sort of this sacred place that was covered up by a curtain. Like it was a tabernacle or something like that's, that's how I usually feel at the music box. And then this year it wasn't like that. So hopefully next year they don't have everything as terrible as back. Cause it was a little, all I, I honestly, I feel like I enjoyed each of these movies less than I would have, uh, had I not been assaulted by this sort of alternative comedy sensibility, which I'm sure some people really enjoyed. Cause again, they're, it's a very popular Everything is terrible or very popular. So I'm sure there are several people in the audience who just got bigger kick out of that than they would have ever out of seeing the trailer for, you know, Godzilla versus King Kong or whatever. But for me, it was it was it was really horrible. I mean, it, it's not like uh, something that also kind of prevented you from uh, talking to your neighbor, or communicating and just kind of forming a community there. If you just have your images exactly. constantly going. Exactly. No, that's it's totally. I mean, we sort of formed a community because at the end we just hated everything is terrible. We were all sort of united and ha- how angry we were that the laser eye thing was still going. But but it was like the wrong kind of community. Um, and it also just, again, it it felt less like a celebration. It felt more like the kind of people who show up because they like to laugh at old movies and how hokey they are. And to be fair, there are moments where it's like, uh, there's a couple. I mean, you're seeing a screening of a horror movie with horror veterans. Even if they are, even if these people are scared by these movies, they're not going to want to admit it. Probably, like they're going to, they're more sure. likely to laugh as just a reaction. And obvious, and, and often laughter is more a sign of nervousness than it is a sign that they actually think something is funny. Um, but that's just sort of. And then sometimes it is an old like there's a, there's a line in Cat People uh, where. 
uh, a psychiatrist goes, I'm sorry, the law is very clear. It's illegal to divorce an insane person. (laughs) (laughs) And like, that is just a funny thing that it's just, it's so outdated. It's just an hysterical thing to hear. So like, there are moments like that where it makes sense to laugh, but it almost felt like everything is terrible. It sort of tipped the audience closer to just mocking, which is not the vibe I ever get from these things. So I don't know. I'm going to the uh, Terror in the Isles massacre um, on Saturday and Sunday. Going to see some even more crazy movies. I'm going to see Chopping Mall and Tenebrae. And I'm going to see Cemetery Man for the first time, which I'm excited about. Um, so uh, hopefully that one will be better. But uh, anyway, it was a fun time. And uh, those are a bunch of movies I saw. Um, I also saw Curse of the Werewolf. By Terrence Fisher. That's a, that's a sweet segue. I shouldn't have mentioned Curse of the Werewolf by Terrence Fisher for the segue to really work. But instead, uh, I sort of just pointed out when I was doing a segue. Hey! You can cheat and edit it out. I'm going to edit out all this. I'm, and it's just going to go to, hey, Robert. <laughs> what? <laughs> Let's talk about Terrence Fisher. Terence Fisher, 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 no, I mean, the Frankenstein became uninteresting after Karloff left. I mean, I, I, I mean, I, I was exposed to all of them, so I, 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 I love the one of the kid, but I mean, it's, the the whale ones are are great, obviously, and there's there's good things to say about the the mummy and the the Wolfman and. Even Dracula, at least the first uh, Transylvanian section, yeah. Transylvania section of Dracula. But I mean, it's once they started combining them and using lesser directors, it's it's they're they're fun, no, but they're, they're not really good. Um, yeah, I mean, I have a little bit of a fondness for Creature from the Black Lagoon. I got saw. Oh. Sure, I mean, but I don't really consider that part of the the classic Universal ones. I I consider that more of a Jack Arnold film than a classic uh, uh, the Universal horror film. I mean, Creature is not expressionistic no. in any sense of the word. And is that in the? I have um, the Blu-ray over there. Is that in the Blu-ray set, Creature from the Black Lagoon? Yeah, but, but it is wow, in three D. Even I don't have a three D TV, but uh, yeah, I, I've seen it once in in three D in the theater. So that was, that's fun. Same. It's actually really good. Like, you, I you always think of like 3D is just garbage, and it and it, it is just kind of gimmicky garbage in any context. But like, the the photography is actually good, and you see the bubbles come up, and the and bubbles, it, and the fish swimming in the foreground or the and, background, and the and sort of that little uh, Esther Williams kind of ballet that the creature does with the with the I can't remember her name at the moment, but Julie, um, not Andrews, uh, Winters maybe or. Uh... Julie something or other, anyhow. Yeah. Adams. Uh, Julie Adams. Julie Adams, that's right. Okay. Um, yeah, like, that sequence is really, really good in 3D. 
um, because it is kind of it. It almost is the it was played tribute to in Piranha 3D in that sort of underwater naked lady ballet sequence, where it's just this kind of weird abstract thing that uh, it, it the the sense of the the swamp is kind of uh, played down as it as the the screen just sort of becomes this tableau and you're watching these two people swim. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't have a 3D TV, so I'm not able to take advantage of it, but I, I, I want to revisit that one. I know in the 80s they had the 3D glasses giveaway and they showed, uh, what was the sequel? The Creature on TV? Uh, well, there was, the, there was Revenge of the Creature, and then there was The Creature Walks Among Us, yeah. in which in which <laughs> The Creature Walks Among Us has the craziest premise, which is the creature is mortally injured and scientists try to save it by giving it lungs and making it human. <laughs> Does he... And I don't know what the end game is. Like, is the end game that the creature gets a job <laughs> and, like, integrates into society and, like, just gets a white picket fence and, down and in settles down with some... Yeah, settles down with some nice girl. Like, I don't know what the end goal is. I was really... I mean, with the title, like, The Creature Walks Among Us, I was really hoping for that. I was hoping it would turn into The Naked Kiss. <laughs> <laughs> but... But with the creature instead of a former prostitute, a former a, a former swamp monster. Uh, so speaking of the Universal horror movies, so the Frankenstein's the you know the James Whale ones were good because they identified with Frankenstein the monster. Uh, it was a very sort of um, it, it, this. I mean, obviously James Whale uh, being a gay man of in the 30s, he had sort of an outsider story to tell. Um, and so when you empathize with the monster and how the monster doesn't fit in through no fault of his own, just the way he was made, you know, these towns, people are, are chasing him into a windmill with pitchforks and torches. And I mean, it goes even further and bright, bright of Frankenstein, it almost just becomes the, the Frankens. It almost, it becomes Frankenstein just like is a hitch, is a hitchhiking lonely <laughs> wanderer, you know, like, like Bride of Frankenstein explodes that even further. Um, and then. The other Frankenstein movies, Frankenstein movies were kind of, they were kind of the focal point for where all these monster mashups would happen. Because once you have a mad scientist, you have a, a narrative excuse for anything to happen, including like, oh, I need a mad scientist to cure me of my wolf madness, or I need a mad scientist, I'm Dracula, and I need a mad scientist for blood, or I, I don't know what Dracula's involvement was. I haven't, I haven't seen many of those films, but like, it, it sort of lost focus on the on Frankenstein as a, as a, the monster, as a sort of a tragic figure, um, and just became a more generic kind of sci-fi horror. And then by the time you get to Terrence Fisher's curse of Frankenstein, it's actually kind of abandoned the monster and it's just focusing on the man. Yeah. Frankenstein. I, I, I think it's, it's definitely a, a, a product of this post-war period when we're, Kind of ambivalent about uh, science after scientists have invented the nuclear bomb and are uh, threatening everybody uh, with uh, uh, destruction. Um, I mean, in that period, the, the end of the world was a, a conceivable uh, event. Um, and they, they kind of wondered about the uh, out-of-control uh, scientists without ethical boundaries, uh, what he could unleash. Um, and I, I think it, it really struck a chord there. Uh, it's it's a really interesting movie because uh, have you read the book Frankenstein? I have. Uh, uh, how closely does how close is it to the book? It's not at all close to the book. I mean, 
there's some moments of the book that make it into the movie, like making an all movie. Um, they kind of underplay the resurrection, but I mean, Frankenstein in the book uh, thinks his uh, experiment is a failure and he abandons his creature. Um, while in the Curse of Frankenstein, he considers his experiment a success and he's always trying to show the world that how successful he was. Uh, and he's, he seems to be proud of his career. Uh, I mean, I, there's even a, a nice little throwaway scene in there where he's uh, cooking a meal for the creature and he uh, tastes the food and adds salts and just to make sure that the food tastes good. So, I mean, it's a, it's, it's actually almost the all, the opposite of what the book is. It's, it is, it is an interesting scene. I like, I like those little moments. It's not a slow movie uh, by any stretch of the magic. It's a very short movie. In fact, most of these films were not like universal films tended not to be tended to be under 80 minutes and these films tend uh, are pretty much all under 90 minutes um so yeah curse of frankenstein's 82 minutes it's a it's a pretty brisk film but it still has those kind of slower moments where um where a lot about character is told through just action like my favorite scene is so it, it starts off with baron frankenstein as a boy and oh god, the kid who plays Baron Frankenstein's so good. He he doesn't necessarily look like Peter. Like I remember when I was watching Curse of Werewolf. The crazy thing about that is the little boy looks exactly like all of yeah, Reed. like the, exactly the, the casting they got was perfect. Like when it, when it, when the little when they flash forward and it's Oliver Reed, it's like oh my god, yeah, of course that's what the kid grew up to be. Um, and whereas uh, I wouldn't say that uh, the kid in Curse of Frankenstein necessarily looks like Peter Cushing, but he has that Cushing arrogance down so well. <laughs> oh, he's such a great little shit. Uh, <laughs> um, but so like, it sort of introduced to him as a child, um, and then he has a tutor that he sort of forms a bond with. And then the first introduction, at, first introduction to uh, Frankenstein as an adult, he it's him and uh, his tutor doing an experiment um trying to resurrect a a, a recently dead dog yeah well um, that's a that's a second introduction because he's introduced at the beginning uh oh that's all right pulled in the in the prison <laughs> right i forgot about the framing device that's right so he is he's introduced in the prison which is uh it's, it's a cool fair framing device because it sets up a, a necessary tension that really isn't there for the first 20 minutes of the film otherwise um it, it makes it makes his slide into evil feel more inevitable and and stronger just because you know he ends up uh, in he's in prison and no one believes him and something crazy has happened and it's yeah it's it's, it's a standard technique a lot of films do this um, but it's a good one yeah and and it sets up oh you think you know what the story is here's the true story yeah exactly so um but then there's this silent scene where they're resurrecting the dog and you just see them working all of these like i think terrence fisher uh, like james whale you know he has sort of a campy sensibility and there would just all of the science in those frankenstein movies it would just be like someone throws a switch and then the craziest electric things you've ever seen are all buzzing and there's bubbling la- and it's just you don't understand like is any of this connected like what what is that what is that bubbling liquid what is, what actually is that Whereas this, you almost feel like Terrence Fisher has come up with an explanation for what each piece of equipment <laughs> in that laboratory does, just the way they are interacting and 
they're very carefully modulating things the way actual science experiments are done where they're like noting everything and they're timing it getting their timing together and synchronous and it's yeah it's it's and it's all done and it and it's all done wordlessly and it's it's such a great sort of introduction and it's really because they don't have i mean to be honest they don't have a great those two actors don't have a great chemistry who is robert urquhart yeah robert urquhart is it urquhart yeah robert urquhart plays his 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 assistant his tutor yeah robert urquhart is uh paul uh uh krempa uh his uh uh tutor who frankenstein uh soon surpasses uh and he's uh he's kind of the conscience of the right. film although i i think he's kind of an ineffective conscience of the film um uh, and basically it's their relationship is is the center of the of the film uh, well at least until the creature is born or created yeah it's well, and it's and I mean they don't have a great chemistry. They don't they don't necessarily come across like no. He, friends. I mean, he seems constantly surprised by what Cushing comes up with. It. I mean, they're supposed to have known themselves for. Yeah, it, it really is just that one sequence. Yeah, you you would have seen inklings of this beforehand, but it's really just that one sequence where they're working together on the experiment that it sort of cements like their relationship. And then that's sort of the basis of the relationship for the whole rest of the movie. And it's, it's I really like that sequence and the, and the scene in which Cushing's salting, uh, like adding, uh, seasoning to the, the, to the monster's food is pretty great too. Um, for the same reason. Yeah. I mean, uh, I mean, Urquhart, I guess was a, uh, somewhat prestigious, uh, actor at the time they had to get special permission to get at least get him in the film while uh uh Cushing uh really wanted to do the part uh he had uh made a name for himself on television uh, I mean he had been in uh Olivier's Hamlet beforehand and then he kind of around in television for a while but uh, uh with 1984 an adaption 1984 in the mid 50s for the BBC being something that kind of vaulted him up so when uh Hammer was uh casting around to uh get to redo uh frankenstein uh cushing jumped at it and and cushing is sort of the central actor in pretty much uh not all of the terrence fisher movies but nearly all of these terrence fisher movies he is he is dr frankenstein he is van helsing in the dracula films that focus very strongly on van helsing um he pl- he plays the protagonist of the mummy Sherlock Holmes, Sherlock Holmes and Hound of the Baskervilles. He uh, he's sheriff of Nottingham in uh, Sword of Shorewood Forest. Oh really? Who plays Robin Hood in that? Uh, Richard Green, who was a television actor uh, that played Robin Hood on the BBC. Terence Fisher drew the episodes of that. Peter Cushing would have been absolutely horrible for Robin Hood, but I kind of would want to see it just 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 to see just to see. Just to complete the spectrum of Peter Cushing roles, <laughs> but he's, he's, he's like actually a, a, a good uh, sheriff of Nottingham. Uh, oh sure, I mean again, it's his arrogance. His arrogance is sort of his defining feature. Yeah, it, it is, and his, his piercing he, blue eyes. Yeah, I mean, yeah, his eyes. Well, his his eyes sort of are what get across his arrogance because he always. It's this great combination of he he talks like he thinks he's the smartest guy in the room. But he also talks like he is the smartest guy. Like you believe it, <laughs> and like even like which is which is why he's such a good Sherlock Holmes because he just comes across as this 
wonderful prick who's <laughs> <laughs> just like he of course he is because he's right all the time yeah, he, you know he he, he, um, he definitely projects authority and intelligence he's he shows a little bit more sort of compassion uh when he portrays van helsing it's not that he plays the same character in all these movies um he he does show a certain range to the point the, the what the funny thing if you watch the mummy I always felt like the mummy was supposed to be written for someone who's like 15 years younger. Sure. <laughs> like, like he's sitting there, he's like talking, oh, father, oh, daddy. Like, he's supposed to have these daddy issues, but he looks like he could be a father of a teenager himself. Like, yeah, he's it, much, uh, much too old for his wife. Yeah, that's that too. Um, and it, which it, it, it's kind of fun watching that. Like, I, it's not that he's miscast because he is, uh, despite the fact that. I, and again, this always happens if you know an actor from later in his career, and you go back and you watch his him early career. He it, like you can watch an actor in their twenties, but you're sort of superimposing what they look like in their fifties or sixties. Um, sure, I'm, I'm I'm sure Star Wars uh, lays over much of a public perception of uh, Peter Cushing. Exactly, that's a, exactly what I was going to say. Is that I, I'm I'm thinking about Star Wars, and I just thinking about him as an old man. But he he is convincingly physical. There's he has some there's some great action scenes in Horror of Dracula and Brides of Dracula where he's jumping off tables and he's swinging around on stuff and it looks like he's doing all the stunts and um he's you know he's game for it and he he sells it well so it's it's not as if it's like oh it's campy because he's miscast he he does he plays the parts well. It's just he brings to them such an essential cushingness <laughs> that that it, it it's funny to see it again and again. In especially since these are all reimagined, or not all, but most of them are reimaginings of Universal horror films. Yeah, um, I mean, I mean, Universal doesn't have a copyright on on them. I mean, Curse of Frankenstein is is not at all like Frankenstein. Um, it it's it goes its own way and it has its own identity and uh it 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 plays by its own rules and i think it's 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 strong before that i terence fisher said he purposely didn't watch frankenstein before he made curse of frankenstein uh he just took the script as it was and tried to approach it uh as he thought it was best and i i think that's uh, uh shows through in the final product oh for sure um so i mean uh we've talked about a little bit about what sort of makes a hammer horror? I guess it it wouldn't be it it, it could be helpful um, for anyone who hasn't seen these films to sort of provide more context for these uh, for what sort of separated this studio's films from horror at the time. Another thing that immediately right in Curse of Frankenstein that you see is that uh, they're much more violent um, or at the very least gruesome uh, than you would expect uh, horror movies at the time to be. Where yeah. Uh, 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 well, I mean, Curse of Frankenstein, you know, you see eyeball, you see like great close-ups of eyeballs and and blood and 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 brains, and there you see a dismembered arm that gets dissolved in acid. I mean, you don't see it actually dissolving, but you you know you hear it. It's implied strongly enough. There's a lot of gruesome details that they're sort of they're kind of goosing the audience with. They're having fun, uh, sort of prodding, <laughs> sort of for the respectable audiences at the time. Uh, with the with this uh, sort of macabre in, in imagery, yeah, and you can see, uh, courtesy of Bernard Robinson's art direction, a lot of red in the script. So if you don't have blood, 
you have the color red in just about every scene, so it's it's actually implied uh, everywhere. That's interesting. I didn't I didn't realize that. Uh, I mean, far far as I can tell, uh, I think House of Wax and Mystery of the Wax Museum were color films before Hammer got to uh, this, but uh, Curse of Frankenstein was definitely the first color film uh, for a British horror film, and uh, they they made the most of it. Uh, actually, how they it's it's a good story how they got it past the British Board of Film Censors of the time. Uh, what they did, what Anthony Hines, who was the producer of the film, did instead of he he told the board that it was a a color film, but when they actually sent the print to uh, be reviewed, he sent a black and white print. Ha! <laughs> that is funny. And the board and the board didn't think to ask to see the color. No, I mean, they probably watched probably four or five movies a day, and they probably didn't have time to do that. Oh, but he kind of played the system that That's really way. good. That's really he, good. He had, he, had the, he had it in writing that it was a color film, and they never realized it. I mean, if you want to see what Curse of Frankenstein uh, looks like in black and white, there's a, uh, a shot of, uh, well, when Peter Cushing opens the door and they have the big, uh, zoom into the monster when his unveiling that uh, shows up in Lolita. Uh, Kubrick used it kind of when he uh, for a kind of a shock moment when uh, uh, James Mason takes uh, Lolita and her mother to the movies so he can get the excuse to sit between them and hold both their hands. Oh, that's interesting. I didn't, I didn't know that. I actually we I, we, we, we talked about uh, Herzog's remake of Nosferatu. The first time I saw that was in high school and I watched it in black and white for some reason. I guess you were pretentious at the time. Yeah, yeah. I think I was just, but unearned pretentious. I don't think at the time I'd actually seen the silent film. I was just. <laughs> what, what's that? What's that called when you're young and you think you know everything and you have sort of an unearned pretentious asshole? I was an asshole. <laughs> I was just going to say youthful. Yeah, youthful. You, they, they can mean the same thing. Honestly, let's be honest. Uh, we love all our young listeners, though. If you're a teenager and you're listening to this, not you, uh, just <laughs> just your friends. <laughs> um, yeah, I so, took my my teenage cousin to see uh, to see uh, Metropolis uh, a few years back when they showed the complete print with an orchestra, and right. he he says it's his favorite movie now. Although I kind of doubt that. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's that's very nice of him to say, but I, I'm sure it, I, that doesn't mean he couldn't have enjoyed it. Oh, he enjoyed it. Yeah. There's no question he enjoyed it. So, I mean, um, he, he's, he became a big Fritz Lang fan at the time. So, so you're t- so we're talking about uh, them having to get stuff past the British censors. I mean, one of the things about these films, this came. Uh, there's this. Um, there's a great book called The Five Cent Plague, and it's sort of about the rise of horror comics and true crime comics and stuff, and how there was mass hysteria in America and elsewhere about these kinds of comics, you know, EC comics, tales from the crypt a vault of horror, all these things uh, where everyone was convinced that these were just poisoning the, the, the minds of children. And that they, these were the reasons for juvenile delinquency. It wasn't, it wasn't post-world war America. It wasn't the fact that there are all these people without parents now and all these broken homes and stuff. It was, it was the, it was EC. <laughs> so, and there was this uh, book written by a Frederick psychiatrist name. I, Frederick, okay, you go ahead. You tell the story. Well, I mean, he he wrote the book "Seduction of the Innocent," which basically um, was it Senator Cafalver used as a, 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 a 
a stick to beat down uh, uh, the comic book publishers and uh, uh, basically put in the censorship board, the Comics Code Authority on uh, 50s comics, which lasted at least until the uh, 70s or 80s when it became ineffective. But it basically was, oh, you read Batman comics, Batman and Robin are obviously in a gay relationship, Wonder Woman's obviously a lesbian, um, those sorts of things. And, of course, they beat down uh, Williams Gaines and EC comics the most. And and so this is sort of the climate these films were coming out in, and and they these were as as much as you look back now and you see these you know beautiful costumes and these richly decorated sets and these sets in these Victorian settings and it all it almost comes across as a costume drama, like these were not respectable movies at the time. Oh no, they were hated at the time. Um, I, a couple of reasons they were hated at the time. I mean, one one the the British always provided them uh, prided themselves on the realism of their films. And they were they were into the kitchen sink drama at the time, at least the critics were. So look back in anger and stuff like that with what the British prided themselves. The, that yeah, was their the, new the wave. Sort of, of British... working working class, angry young man kind of movies. Sure, and, and that's that's what the 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 British censor or British critics wanted to hold up. Well, the Hammer, which is the more fantastical films. Uh, they really were appalled by, it. and they called the Curse of Frankenstein a a charnel house, which is funny in retrospect, but uh, how they really felt at the time, and even even some of the people working on it, I know Robert Urquhart uh, uh, was appalled by the movie, and he vowed never to work for Hammer again, and he never did work with him again. It's well, it's funny now. Like part of what makes me interested in the Hammer now is it exists in between. In now looking at it in retrospect. Not, certainly not at the time it seemed quaint, but in retrospect, it exists in between having things that are truly shocking and you don't expect to see. Um, not just, not just like in Brides of Dracula, Peter Cushing as Van Helsing, he gets bitten and to stop himself from turning, he cauterizes his own wound on his neck and you see him with a branding iron with a branding iron and you see him shoving it on his neck and you see the scar afterwards and it's really gruesome and it's and you would expect like you would expect he would heat it up and then the camera would slowly pan away to his shadow as he put it on him but no you see him fucking cauterizing his wound and it there's lots of things that are genuinely like oh wow I didn't think they would go there but also there's a kind of quaintness to it's just they're very british films they are (laughs) they're they're extremely british films i I just there's a certain politeness to it and it's and and there's it's it's caught in between those things is sort of what has made me now uh have an interest in horror uh hammers uh horror films um and terence fisher was sort of the premier architect of 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 hammer uh as yeah. yeah once although he, uh, his, his, his yeah I'm i mean sorry, he, he was but we should we should uh acknowledge that there there were precedents before it uh i mean probably the most important film in hammer's history before terence fisher and curse of frankenstein was the quatermass experiment uh you probably haven't seen it but it's a 1950s film with uh a, a little bit of gore but it has body horror in it even has a found footy segment in it, um, so that's what really kicked off Hammer into the horror direction. Uh, it was followed up by uh, uh, Quatermass Two, which is kind of a uh, invasion of the body snatchers type one. But they, the body snatchers, get farther in this movie. They they actually infiltrate the government, and uh, they're uh, 
have plans well on the way to taking over the world and terraforming it. Um, it, it's, it's a really fast paced and, uh, exciting film. Um, and, and those two were done by Val Gehand, uh, and, and, and based on, uh, Nigel Neal, I, you can tell that, uh, uh, John Carpenter was a big fan of both of those movies because oh uh, yeah he the pen name for uh, pen name for Prince of Darkness is Martin uh, Martin Quatermass yeah he and it, it's certainly based on John Carpenter is obviously a fan of those movies and author Nigel Neal I mean I, I believe uh, Parker Jamison is wearing a, a Neal University uh, t uh, sweatshirt in uh, Prince of Darkness um, that's what got Hammer started on the way. Um, and Hammer, Nigel Neal was a, a, a really strong science fiction writer, but he also kind of had it in the uh, a little bit of gothic in him when he's writing his science fiction. You can look at uh, the Quatermass Experiment as a tale of possession as an astronaut comes out to blast off to outer space and comes back possessed by an alien presence. Uh, in the, the second... Uh, television serial that it's based on he even speaks in tongues at one point he speaks german and english because he's fused with the german scientist because they're all kind of uh fused together uh the second one you have kind of a more of a mass possession going on um in in nigel neal's teleplay the road they get uh visions from a post-apocalyptic future back in the medieval past that's a mistake for ghosts uh which is something that kind of pops up in prince of darkness uh, that's Nigel Neal and Val Guest and Hammer were all kind of uh, fused together uh, at that point. But uh, but that that all sounds more like the of the more traditional fifties uh, sci fi based horror, which is not what Hammer is in retrospect known for. What they're known for is more the fantastic fantasy uh, horror of the yeah. Mummy. I mean and that, that was and, beforehand and. Hammer, the modern studio, did uh, market research and found that the audience was responding to the horror, not the science fiction. So they kind of said, okay, we're going to go science fiction horror, but we'll go to the classic gothic Frankenstein as kind of our stepping stone uh, to see how that works. Oh, that's interesting. Oh, wow. I I never even thought about it like that, but that would – yeah, that does feel – yeah. That yeah, makes I mean, sense. that's how they came up for him, and and they still did the horror, the the science fiction movie. About the time they were doing Frankenstein, or immediately before, they did uh, another Nigel Neal film, uh, the Abominable Snowman, uh, directed by Val Guest, which is kind of a Lutonesque uh, uh, Abominable Snowman science fiction film in the uh, Himalayas, uh, with Peter Cushing in it as a good botanist scientist, and they also did. Uh, Prior X the Unknown, which kind of a nuclear uh, blob monster uh, movie. It was supposed to be directed by Joseph Losey, but uh, the American actor they got to star in it, Dean Jagger, refused to work with a blacklisted director. <laughs> uh, so they so they hired a, a, another English director, Leslie Norman, directed, and that was scripted by Jimmy Sangster, who wrote Curse of Frankenstein, Horror Dracula, the classic. Uh, Terrence Fisher, or at least the first batch of Terrence Fisher. Uh, in that, you can see some of the touches that would come to define uh, Hammer. There's a scene where there's a, a, a an X-ray technician has uh, a nurse come visit him for a 
tryst and there's a, a the monster is attracted to radiation and so it comes to the x-ray room and it uh, literally kills the x-ray technician and melts the uh, flesh off his uh, face killing the skull which is pretty gory for the time and uh, uh, kind of is a uh, a precursor to the finale of a uh, horror of Dracula. Oh, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> certainly flesh melting off the skull that Jimmy Sangster who wrote curse Frankenstein horror of Dracula. He was an early collaborator with Terrence Fisher. He wrote a lot of Terrence Fisher's early films. Um, and I, I feel like, like those early films tend to be very, um, well plotted. They're very well paced. Uh, um, yeah, there's there's, there's a lot of sensation and shock in them. Yeah, and, and that, I mean, I think I think Horror of Dracula is maybe one of the best paced uh, horror movies ever. And as an adaptation of Dracula, it's brilliant in that uh, it doesn't even bother trying to have a period of time in which the audience is. It knows that the audience knows that Dracula is Dracula, so it. It, so when Jonathan Harker gets there, he is not dumbstruck kind of real estate agent. He is a man on a mission to kill Dracula in secret. Um, yeah, and, and that's it, that's a good surprise for the it's audience. A, it's, a, it's a great moment, and it's and it's one of the, and it's especially because by the time you it's revealed because he's writing this in his diary. By the time it's revealed to the audience. The audience might have already been like, kind of disappointed, like, "Oh, this Dracula's castle didn't look very spooky." Oh, that's Dracula. He seems just kind of like a dude. <laughs> like he <laughs> seems like a he seems he's a little stiff, but he's you know he's he's uh, he's part of the he's part of the oligarchy. Uh, like uh, <laughs> it's uh, you know he's he's a he's an aristocrat. He's not necessarily a, a, a beast uh, from the depths. And um, and then that moment is such a great moment because then all of a sudden. It's it's no longer a build. It's not. It's no longer. Where's the tension building? You're right in the middle of the tension because oh, okay. So Dracula is a monster, and he's right in the heart of the monster's lair, and he's gonna kill the monster. And it's almost as if it's almost as if the movie starts with the third act of a different movie. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I think, I think that uh, uh, that uh, that applies to a little bit to uh, Curse of Frankenstein as well. I mean, we we get into. The, uh, we know that where the where the movie is going, but it it tries to surprise us, and um, with that, I um, with with uh, we don't know. We think we know Frankenstein, but we really find out who Frankenstein is uh, in the movie with uh, murders and a whole bunch of stuff going on before we get, actually get to the uh, uh, re- the creation scene. I mean, the the creation scene is kind of a climax of. Uh, getting to know Frankenstein as a murderous evil do uh, evil character beforehand. Yeah. And his sort of just, oh God, what, and what's so great about that is he isn't a cackling mad scientist. It's sort of just about the banality of that evil, like Cushing just so casually the same way that the same way that he just is, he would, you know, write down notes after doing an experiment, he will push someone off the stairs <laughs> off a balcony and kill them for their brain. He'll kill, push a genius. He'll push a genius off a balcony uh, if he gets that genius brain afterwards. And that's really great. Um, yeah, who would do a face plant? Oh, yeah. really? <laughs> I mean, that's that's a really uh, then, well conceived shot there. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and then this, and then that genius is, and then the idea that uh, instead of some assistant who you know messes up and 
they don't get the brain they want. The reason the monster is the way they are is because the brain was damaged, and you see it get da- you see it get all chopped up and gross, and that's a that's a great moment too because it is like okay, well, the murder was wrong, but now the murders happen. He's, he might as well take the brain. Like, <laughs> he just so casually explains like, well, I mean, he's not using his brain anymore, so obviously. I, 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 did I murder him? I don't think I murdered him. Uh, I, I do know I didn't want that brain, so I might as well take the brain now. Might as well, like might as well fix the problem by making him live again. Right. Cushing is so, God, he's so good at that because it, yeah, it's just, it's, the casualness of it is kind of chilling. Um, and it's, it's helpful because that is the whole arc of Curse of Frankenstein is just about, you it's not really about him turning evil it's sort of about you realizing how evil he's been this whole time yeah i mean um, it it actually kind of defeats the framing device cuz he's trying to persuade him that he should he's not evil because of what he's accomplished but in his frame, in telling his story he confesses to what multiple murders <laughs> yeah well, yeah multiple murders playing god all the all of the sacrilegious things it's it's honestly it's the problem I had with the the Revenge of Frankenstein the sequel, which unfortunately that was the only other Frankenstein movie I got to. I know you really wanted me to see Frankenstein created a woman. Uh, we we can talk about it in a little bit, but like Revenge of Frankenstein, it's the one of the interesting things about the Frankenstein series, right? Is it isn't about the monster; it's about the man, and therefore it's about sort of his experiments. And so the first thing is. So the first film is, I can bring something back to the dead, but can I build something that was never alive in the first place and give that life? And then by the time you get to the second movie, it's like, well, I already can just sort of link up any body parts I want. (laughs) And uh, I could do a little experiment in which there's like eyeballs floating in a jar and there's an arm floating in a jar and there's a brain floating in a jar and they're all connected uh, via wires and I'm threatening the hand, the arm floating in the jar with fire, and then the eyeballs see it, and then the brain's freaking out, and the hands move. Like he, he is just, he's. It's, it's like, oh, Frankenstein's monster. <laughs> That's so passe. I've, uh, I've already conquered that. I'm onto crazy. I mean, in Frankenstein created woman, he's now transferring. Uh, my understanding, he's transferring the soul of one person. He, he's gone beyond brains. <laughs> he, he's, he's moving one person's soul to another body, but. Yeah. Um, so in Revenge of Frankenstein, he has faked his own death. He's now living in a different place with a new name. Um, and he has a willing hunchback assistant who wants his brain transferred into a well-constructed body, you know, so he won't have this disability. So he's kind of admirable in that respect. It ends up that not respect. having – right. It just kind of is about a brain transplant. <laughs> it's not a particularly scary thing. Like I'm going to put a – I'm going to make do a brain transplant with a willing host <laughs> into a body that never had will to begin with. So I'm not I'm – not, I'm not really violating anyone's will. Um, it's, it, 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 it instantly became a less interesting movie to me. Because it didn't have that arc that the first one did. Yeah, I, I understand that, but I mean, it also doesn't have the 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 parlor scenes that kind of drag on and on. Like, you shouldn't do this, or I I will uh, tell Elizabeth to go away, or no, I won't. It, I, Christopher had a lot of strengths to it, but it, it kind of vacillates in the parlor scenes, and Paul Krempa is That's kind of true. an ineffective uh, uh, conscious of the film. 
mm-hmm. that kind of removes the conscience of uh, Frankenstein in the uh, in Revenge, and it has a. I, I won't say that it's it's a real uh, complicated, but it's probably the most ambiguous you see of Frankenstein because even if he is be, doing some good, uh, helping out his assistant, although it's for selfish purposes of saving himself from the guillotine, it's uh, he's also uh, harvesting parts from indigent patients, uh, which certainly is not uh, the most admirable thing you could do. No, no, that's true. I mean, there is the there's a few things he does, but. It's not the fo- it's sort of just things that happen in the periphery. And then also the weird thing about Revenge of Frankenstein and I guess we we could talk about uh just this sort of aspect of Hammer films is it has this weird uh conservative value to it where it's like this weird fear like basically the new Frankenstein in the new town he has set up a hospital in addition to his regular practice where he has stolen all of the the uh the board of the medical boards he's stolen all their best patients or whatever with his you know regular medical practice he also has sort of a a hospital for the poor that he spends time in um and and every person in this hospital is the craziest stereotypical like weird depiction of like a poor person to the point where there's actually it's basically a subplot that poor people don't wash themselves and they're proud <laughs> of it. Like the fact that all poor people are filthy is a subplot in this movie. And the person whose arm he steals, which is the one it's implied that he has been stealing more parts, but the one person that you know he steals a part from is this guy's arm. And he goes, well, what do you do for a living? And he goes like, well, I'm a pickpocket. <laughs> it's like, all right, well, we don't have a lot of sympathy for that no. guy. And then the two, the true drunkards at the beginning of the film are just grave robbers. Like there's a weird, and this is, it's a weird, it's a thing that pops up a lot with these films is this weirdly conservative side to it, which is, I mean, obviously it's not my values, but I do find it interesting just cause, um, you know, being someone who has probably seen more Hollywood films than it, films from any other uh system like hollywood films tend to just be vaguely liberal leaning yeah um, i i would and, agree with that and this kind of unabashedly conservative horror movie i just find fascinating yeah uh can you t- where does it where does that come from that that's a good question um i don't think it comes from terence fisher terence fisher uh born to working class parents and his father died when he was four uh, he joined the Merchant Marine when he was like uh, uh, 16. Uh, so he, he worked his way up. I mean, after he got out of the Merchant Marine, he worked uh, at a department store. He was a window dresser there. Uh, so he that's where he learned his some of his visual language, how to uh, stage a scene, how to... He probably worked with mannequins, so maybe that's why he's, uh, he knows how to s- present women in a good light. Uh, because he worked with with the, those little mannequins, and you can you can kind of see how he he works in a three dimensional space when you watch his movies. And oh yeah, the, his camera movements for sure. It it kind of reminded me of watching. It's not as sophisticated, but it kind of reminded me of like watching uh, Vincent Minnelli. Yeah, I, I I would think those those are a direct comparison. I mean, they they both worked as window dressers, and they they both uh, used uh, subtly reshaped the frame, um, think three dimensionally. Uh, I, w- I would say the defining characteristic of uh, Terrence Fisher is his deep focus photography. 
uh, and how he moves the camera in and out to push in for emphasis. And uh, he also has a, a good sense of uh, uh, power relationships. Uh, you see Dracula constantly appearing at the, po- the top of stairs, um, the camera looking up at him. Uh, those are the kind of things that he he would do in his films. He would he would do that back in his pre Hammer days too. Um, something like Man in Hiding. If you 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 probably won't be able to see that unless you go to UK film sites to buy some old UK movies. But something like that, he would uh, stage characters on two different heights to emphasize the power relationship, and that's something you see popping up uh, in his films. Um, so would you would you call Terrence Fisher an auteur? He looks through the world at a consistent uh, light. Um, as far as where the conservatism comes from, I don't think it comes from Fisher. Because if it did, it, it's probably forgivable because he worked his way up uh, from working class parents to uh, he was, uh, uh, I believe he was called himself the world's oldest uh, um, clapper boy um, when he joined the studio system in the 30s. And he was. He must have worked hard because within two years he was an editor, um, worked his way up. I, he met his wife during a, uh air raid during World War II, and she convinced him to apply for an editor. So he, he worked his way up throughout his career. So I, I don't think it's from him, but it probably came from either Anthony Hines or Michael Carreras. Those are both uh, two of the... Uh, executives at uh hammer films uh both sons of basically the well michael carreras is the grandson of enrique carreras who founded hammer films along with uh william hines who was a part of a comedy duel named hammer and smith from hammersmith uh the other one was anthony hines uh who was basically (laughs) the creative director in charge of uh uh he's the one that was really behind the gothic horror uh, he's the one that enjoyed doing it. Sure. Uh, uh, David Puri in the, basically in his book, a new, new heritage of horror described the two of them as, uh, sort of royalty at the, uh, company. They would come down for, at Brace Studios, the Manor House studio that Hammer was housed at, and they would get served butter on a silver platter while the rest of the, uh, crew was served margarine. That's weird. <laughs> so uh, why, why do you need butter on a silver platter in the first place? Well, they place? they were they were the founders and they were kind of the golden boys there. Although uh, James Carreras okay. is basically Hammer's head. He was the one that do, did all the financing. He's the one that would fight uh, battles with the board of film fence, uh, board of film censorship. Um, he was basically a, uh, a I guess you would call him a clubby. Uh, he big part of the Variety Club, uh-huh. and he aspired to be a be knighted, which he was eventually in the 1970s. But he he was basically the 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 production head, or at least the 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 figurehead of the studio who would secure the financing, uh, and get American distribution and get the money to make the films. But I I think if if it came from anywhere, it was either Sangster, Heinz, or Carre- or Michael Carreras. Um, it's it's hard to tell. I I would think it probably. Jimmy Sangster, who who worked up from a copy boy, so uh, maybe it's just a Sangster film because it's not it's not really in the the latter Hammer films that were overseen by Anthony Hines, and it's not really in the uh, no 
Terrence Fisher films beforehand because Terrence Terrence Fisher was I won't say he was sympathetic, but he he didn't go out of his way to uh, uh, character characterize the the poor. I mean, he he was pretty sympathetic prostitutes and other ones. Although he he did like his uh, uh, British eccentric uh, when he's do, doing comedy. Yeah, he loved he liked he liked the uh, the the drunk. Yeah. <laughs> Almost all these Terrence Fisher movies have one character who's just totally wasted doing something crazy. Yeah, or a- angling for a drink somehow. I mean, uh, right. Richard Wordsworth is the uh, dirty janitor, revenge of Frankenstein, and he really just seems to want to drink at the end. Yeah, and uh, there's um, <laughs> there's that. There's there's the of course the two grave diggers diggers at the beginning of Revenge of Frankenstein. They can hardly stand up. There's um, uh, the yeah. There's lots of pub scenes in a Fisher film. Cur- curse of, yeah, Curse of the Werewolf. A lot of lot of pub scenes. A lot of drunks. Uh, who's paying for all these drinks? Never mind. Let him talk. <laughs> you know, like <laughs> it's a it's it's a it's a it's a funny uh, sort of standby for him. Uh, yeah. It's also I mean, funny Ter- that Terrence Fisher. I guess say Terrence Fisher always liked to go to a pub. I think he had a, had one close friend outside the film world that he he would definitely make an effort to go to the pub once a week with. Yeah, that's cool. So I think that was just kind of a part of, of connecting these period films with everyday British life in the late fifties, early sixties. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, so so we talked about you know Curse of Frankenstein. We talked about Horror of Dracula. Horror of Dracula is just a. That's like that's a, just a very yeah. I mean, that's tight movie. Let's talk about horror jacket some more. Okay, yeah. I mean, it's a it's a uh, Christopher Lee is an amazing Dracula. He's the only he's the only person I and this later bared out uh, in uh, in Brides of Dracula. But most people when they when they do the thing where they open their mouth and you see the vampire fangs, it just kind of looks cheesy. Um, but vampire, but uh, Christopher Lee has he has such a tall head. <laughs> like he just he just cuts this very narrow tall figure in in his face when he opens his mouth wide and shows the fangs and it's i mean it's a it's the striking image from that movie um other than him and him in yeah, the coffin I mean, like his eyes fluttering open those are the two but uh he's a fantastic actor even though in that in horror of dracula much more so than you know todd browning's dracula or nosferatu dracula is just a monster um yeah have you read the original novel? No, I have not. Okay. I mean, I would say that uh, of of all the uh, Dracula adaptations, Horror Dracula is closest to that novel, at least in spirit. Yeah. Um, I mean, other than Christopher Lee does not having a mustache, he, he he's pretty much as described in the book. <laughs> uh, and uh, you, ha- you have the... Castle Dracula, at least rooms that Jonathan Harker visits, is described as uh, attractive, a, a nice place to be. It's kind of uh, luring the uh, the fly into the spider's web is, is basically the metaphor probably we'd use for that. And, and I, I think that's uh, what you see for horror Dracula. Um, and uh, it's also a very uh, horror, well, the novel, I I think, in some ways, you can you can view it as um, an Eastern European coming to uh, England to commit sex crimes. Is basically you can view it. And Bram Stoker was a, a theater uh, manager in uh, the West End of London during the Jack the Ripper 
crime. So maybe you can you can view it as some sort of a metaphor on those uh, crimes. Yeah. So, or at least at least Eastern Europeans would heavily suspect it, and then you have the alliance of the West driving him out. I, you certainly there's there's sex is uh, un unmistakable in uh, horror Dracula. It being the yeah the. The the seduction scene where she opens her window and lets him in, and or no, she gets the servant to open the window, and he just sort of appears and slowly comes upon her. And that, I think does he does he block out the view of the camera with his cape? He he does. They they kind of use that as a, as for uh, censoring him. Maybe they, they maybe that's to get by with the censors. Although the first uh, scene with uh, uh, the vampire woman where she puts the bite on uh, Harker, you you kind of get a little bit of a. Uh, uh, of, of the bite shown. Yeah, and, uh, and that and that scene is also sexual, though she sort of lures him in, mm-hmm. not uh, or not as a, not as a more as an obvious predator. She lures him by pretending to be sort of a damsel in distress. Yeah, and, and then once he's near and promising to help her, then gets her. Yeah, gets him. Yeah, and and you you can kind of view that as he's kind of a. He treats her in a paternal manner, not in a, a sexual manner. But he underestimates yeah. her. He he uh, he thinks he's in control of the situation, but he's really not. Uh, yeah, it's should have been his should have been his old pal Van Helsing. Van Helsing's always in control of the situation. Yeah, he's not he's not fooled by anything. Um, I mean that th- that that scene, and then you have Dracula bursting in is is one of the uh, uh, key uh, images of the film because he. She she puts the bite on him and then Dracula bursts in and you have the big close up on the bloody mouse Dracula is uh, what I've been told is by people that watched it at the time one of the scariest moments from fifties uh, films. It's it's crazy. It's uh, it's so chaotic because you've already been thrown by thinking oh Jonathan Harper is just an unsuspecting guy. Oh no, he isn't. He's a vampire hunter. All right. And then it's like, all right, so this vampire hunter is going to, like, this poor woman's been captured by a Dracula. Like, this vampire hunter's going to save her and maybe the I, – I don't get a paternal. I I get – I thought it was, like, a romantic thing. Um, but at any rate, and then – Well, I think he, I think he sees himself as a knight that's saving this damsel in distress more than uh, uh, he thinks he's going to get something out of it. But No, that that's that's a fair point. Uh yeah, that that's a fair point. And to be fair, I I'm not as up on sort of British literary motifs to 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 sort of discern the important differences between the two. Um, but at any rate, and then he gets bitten, and it's like, oh my god, is our hero already? Wait, what's going on now? And then Dracula comes in and is pissed at her, and it wait what? And it, it implies this like relationship between like it implies so much in such a short amount of time and he's so frightening that it's like the context of it is just this total chaos um yeah and then yeah he's very and, violent when he pops in too he's not just uh, uh no i i mean i mean bas- basically that's one scene you can see that terence fisher uh redefines our conception of uh uh the vampire i mean this is certainly not a bella lugosi vampire here where yeah, he's hissing. He's he's like, yeah. he's like an animal. Yeah, he's like an animal. And the focus is, I mean, when you watch Bela Lugosi, the focus is really on his eyes. Here, the focus is really on his mouth. Yeah, that's a good point. 
I mean, and, and I think the focus has stayed on uh, the vampire's mouth ever since uh, Horror of Dracula. I think you're right. Yeah, I, I guess you're right. I never thought about it, but no, definitely. Um, but I always thought the focus on Bela Lugosi's eyes was just sort of, I mean, that was that's both in Dracula and White Zombie. I never thought of it as part of the vampire thing. I always just thought of it as a Bela Lugosi thing. But you're right in that it's definitely the trance that people fall into, that uh, people would fall under Dracula's. Uh, under Dracula, it, it was always under the eyes. Yeah, in the Todd Browning Dracula. Uh, yeah, it's about the mesmerizing power in in those movies, but now it's about the the physical biting and draining of blood. I think the I think actually why uh, if, if I can go off topic a little bit, why Fright Night is actually one of my favorite vampire movies is because the seduction scene of I can't remember the main character's name, but his his girlfriend by the vampire. Uh, it's kind of a weird combination of both, where it's very physical, but it's also kind of a mesmerizing thing. And there's a weird ambiguity ambiguity uh, as to how much she's willing and how much she's under his spell. Um, because they've already like tinted earlier in Fright Night about, um, <laughs> about sort of uh, the, the main character's lack of sexual prowess and his awkwardness around those things. Uh, him just being a teenager, not not condemning him for it, but that's just, you know, he's a teenager. He doesn't know what the fuck he's doing. Uh, and so then this sexy older vampire comes along and, and it's sort of like, oh, maybe that's actually what I need. And it's kind of it's kind of there's an ambiguity that's really creepy. And of course, Fright Night, uh, the, the premise of Fright Night is that Peter Cushing fights vampires in the 80s, which <laughs> like is a the, great premise. Like it's very inspired by Hammer uh, by the Hammer films. Sure. Uh, I I mean, uh, there's there's lots that uh, this film ins- inspired. I mean, I I think you you look at the film, and I think one of uh, if you're going to say Dr- Dracula has a power in the film, is that when he's out of the frame, he can be anywhere. Uh, he's kind of like a a a, a 80s slasher when uh, uh, when out out of the frame, you don't know where he is. He can appear at any time, at any moment. Usually, at the top of the stairs yeah. or other power position. Um, I mean, that's even implied in the opening credits there where uh, you start looking up at the symbols of Dracula, the the eagle gargoyles, and then the blood appears out of nowhere from the top of the frame. You don't know what's going on outside the frame. And I think, I think that's uh, uh, one of the uh, defining characteristics of yeah, Dracula in the film. They, they don't even wait for a story moment in Horror of Dracula. They, they splash blood right in the credits. <laughs> it's... It's really good. And it's, yeah, and he, he can appear anywhere. And it's, uh, and part of that is they don't establish how he's traveling. Like, this is the movie where, or in this film at least, you don't see him turning into a bat at all. No, he, um, he, he wakes up in his coffin. Uh, Harker turns around. He's not there. He's at the stairs. Um, I mean, that's a classic, uh, slasher villain motif. And that, that mm-hmm. is probably the first place it appeared. Yeah, and uh, and he's just yeah he's just sort of this um, omnipresent kind of force, and I think I think that is another thing that is in the film Dracula's Dracula was a guy, um, as opposed to this sort of force of evil, and in Nosferatu that's where he's a force. He's like a force of nature. Um, yeah, a shadowy presence. Right, and that that kind of returns in the in the the horror of dracula it's not as earthy it's not as it doesn't it doesn't do plague imagery the way 
that Nosferatu does, but it, it kind of the same way where it doesn't just feel like he is a mythological creature. He's just this sort of ambiguous evil. Yeah. <laughs> and it's, he, he's a flesh and blood physical presence. Yeah. And it's, and it's, um, and it, God, it, speak more even little things in horror dracula just like how do you do exposition here's how you don't do exposition watch todd browning's dracula and see endless scenes of people sitting in parlors uh slowly doling out little facts about the vampire mythology like van helsing goes actually blah 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 uh the daylight can kill them they need blood this that garlic blah blah blah. and then (laughs) and then there's a beautiful uh, it, it's all terrible. And then there's a beautiful exposition scene in Horror of Dracula where it's just Van Helsing dictating to himself, <laughs> like just going over his notes. Like he knows all this and he's not explaining it to anyone else, but but he's explaining it to the audience by just going through his notes. And then someone comes in and it's like, I thought I heard you talking to yourself. <laughs> it's like, I was. <laughs> like, that That's actually out of the novel where uh, Dr. Seward is uh, directing into a... a, a uh, recording device, so they they oh, kind yeah. of took it and repurposed it. I kind of think of that as the precursor of all the autopsy scenes where the uh, um, pathologist is dictating into the cassette tape that we, we see all these days. So I I think it's kind of a, a, a foreshadowing of that. Diane, I found the letter R under the fingernail. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. 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 Pe- um, and Peter Cushing is good in this, and then there's it's there's yeah. a little bit of uh, it slags a little bit with the Michael Gow scenes, yeah, because um, because he needs to be convinced, but the audience doesn't, so it's a little, but um, yeah, he for the most part Dracula is just uh, horror of Dracula or Dracula as it's known in England is it just it's just a really fast paced fun uh, action not action necessarily but like adventure horror sort of a film. Yeah, I mean, I, it it definitely adventure horror. I, I would bring up that uh, uh, Van Helsing is the only one in the movie that can uh, match uh, Dracula's movements because you take the the shot where the uh, the graveyard scene where he just appears out of nowhere kind of like Dracula with the cross in front of Lucy and that that's kind of the uh, he's the only one that can match uh, Dracula as far as the power goes you have two really strong opposing forces there and that and that's kind of the strength of the film that is it's yeah, I didn't, I didn't even think about the, his appearance in the graveyard scene. That's good. I love that. My favorite part of the graveyard scene is when he has to go and kill Michael Gao's sister as she's sleeping. and But the, the niece that uh, his sister has abducted uh, is still there. And he just sort of puts a rosary around her. He goes, all right, you wait there now. Yeah. Be good. It's this, it's this great little, like, he's talking down to her and he's like... This whole time, he's just been supreme confidence, like, oh, you fools, you don't know. And then at that point, he just sort of, like, is literally talking to a child. <laughs> yeah, wraps her, in a, wraps her in a coat. I think he, he talks about it. he looks like a teddy bear. Oh, yeah, yeah. He's, he's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a funny little sweet character moment. Um, yeah. I, I, it, yeah. I mean, I, I think that's, that scene also, when it plays out, points out the difference between the novel and that, I mean, when, when you look at a stake in Bram Stoker's novel or in horror dracula it's it's definitely a phallic symbol in uh the novel homewood uh drives it into his fiance lucy's uh heart and in the the movie since they're brother and sister that would be incest if he drove it in his heart so uh uh van helsing drives it into her heart yeah which um, is, i think is a very effective scene too with the sound effect and the blood oh god the blood gush that's another moment where you're like oh my god i can't believe they did that 
Yeah, I mean, and and you can see what they're what they're going for with Michael Goff in that scene. He's not a, a strong man. He's kind of linked to uh, Lucy. He touches his forehead uh, at the beginning of that scene and then clutches his heart. So he identifies with Lucy. He's more identified with the female character in the scene than uh, he is with Van Helsing. So, um, I, I so you know, the Curse of Frankenstein, and Horror of Dracula. These were kind of the huge major Peter Cushing, Christopher Lee. Uh, films that yeah yeah i yeah i mean i they they were big hits at the time um i mean they they made they made hammer everything else followed from them they they changed horror uh, i mean they were copied right away too who what, what are some of the uh, copies horror of dracula well uh some of the copies one of the copies is horror of the wax museum you have horror of dracula so you got to have horror of uh something something following it up which isn't a supernatural one, but is in color and is bloody. Uh, Michael Goff is a reporter that's committing crimes, so he has stories. Uh, it opens up. I ba- basically, a woman receives a package in the mail with uh, some binoculars. Uh, she adjusts and look out the window, and you hear a snicked. Uh, and basically, you, you see a, a shot of uh, her bleeding from the eyes, and she says, My, my eyes. Um, so that was one of the, the copycats that came out, uh, Circus of Horrors, obviously you have horror in there, because if you have a name in it, you have to copy it, apparently. <laughs> sure. sure, Um, Curse, Curse of Frankenstein was a big hit, so Nightmare was released in America as Curse of the Demon. Oh, that's right. I, I that, they did change the title there. Um, I, we, we don't have a, a ton more time. I wanted to... Uh, if you wanted to talk about some more later Terrence Fisher films. Yeah, I, 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 I do. I would like to uh, just talk about the, the climax of horror Dracula. Sure. Um, I, I think you really see Terrence Fisher, uh, what he believed in at the climax. Cause how many horror films do you really see where you have an iconic image of the hero triumphant, the monster horror films? Not, <laughs> that's not, that's not a thing really. <laughs> No, but it is in Horror of Dracula with Fisher in the can or Cushing in the candlesticks. Yeah, yeah. And I, I think it really uh, reflects uh, Fisher's belief in the ultimate triumph of good over evil. Um, and I think that's one of his defining characteristics. Although in the latter films, it, he would play with that a little bit. But uh, Cushing in the in the candlesticks is uh, certainly one of the great uh, uh, horror images from Hammer. Um, and it's actually an idea that uh, Peter Cushing came up with. Um, he originally, he was in the script, he was supposed to pull a cross out of his uh, pocket, but he kind of said, well, how many crosses am I supposed to be carrying around? Yeah. <laughs> so he, he Cushing kind of suggested it, and Fisher was not uh, one that would, uh, wouldn't work with his uh, crew. He would take suggestions. He might decide that they're good or they're bad, but he would uh, make a decision on it, and he he thought that was a good idea. And... In the moment of triumph, you see the biggest cross uh, of the movie. It's not a little one that can fit in the pocket, but it's a a big one, and I think that works v- visually very well. Even even better in Brides of Dracula, the biggest yeah. possible cross with the uh, windmill. Yeah, windmill is the biggest possible cross. <laughs> it's really uh, Brides of Dracula. We don't have to go too far into that, but that's a really that's a really good movie too. It is. I mean, you see more swashbuckling cushion at, and uh, um, you you certainly see. Fisher always described his well, not always, but he he described his films as macabre or fairy tales for adults rather than horror films. Yeah, and you can certainly see the fairy tale atmosphere 
fully emerge in Brides of Dracula. For sure. Um, I love. <laughs> I also love how the the end of Horror of Dracula is essentially the end of Evil Dead in the way that like the sort of clay animated flesh melting. It's so gruesome. Like you just see, you see the I, hand crumbling apart. It's it's so good. Yeah, crumbling apart over uh, astrological sign of uh, uh, basically a pagan symbol. Oh, I didn't even see that. Yeah, there's a big uh, 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 zodiac uh, uh, on the floor, courtesy of Bernard Robinson. Of course, Dracula has to be uh, destroyed over that. I mean, sure. Well, that was that's the other thing about Terrence Fisher is. It, or I don't know if it's Terrence Fisher or Hammer or whatever, but like it, it, good versus evil is usually coded as Christian versus pagan. Oh, definitely. I mean, uh, Fisher never described himself as uh, very religious, but he's certainly religious in his films. Um, yeah, he was raised initially as a Christian scientist, and I would say Christian scientist describes uh, Van Helsing very well. <laughs> That's very good. Um, so, so what about some, uh, other, uh, uh, later, uh, Terrence Fisher films? Um, well, why don't we talk about, uh, I mean, I, I think we both like Brides of Dracula very much. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's obviously a fairy tale movie and, uh, it kind of plays itself out as, uh, an idea of a woman rescuing the wronged, uh, prince, but it's, it's twisted and you, you certainly see more fully developed women in uh, uh, Brides of Dracula than you do in uh, a Horror of Dracula or Revenge of Frankenstein or Curse of, Curse of Frankenstein. Um, mm-hmm. uh, Martita Hunt as the Baroness Meister is actually a fairly interesting villain because she's luring women to feed her son who she doesn't want to destroy and who ends up biting her and considering uh, her always portrays the vampire attacks as a uh, um, uh, basically sex by other means. You can even view the fangs appearing as phallic. It's uh, kind of a incestuous thing going on there. And it's um, it's a it's a great sort of standalone way to open the movie because at that point there's no Dracula, there's no Van Helsing, there's vague creepiness. But you're, what, wait, what does this have to do with the previous movie? And then that that sort of idea of like, oh my God, he's being held prisoner by his mother there's definitely something wrong with her everyone everyone in the pub was scared of her um and then that sort of just twist at the end where she was the one keeping him there uh and now that he's free like the evil is loose like that's it's it's a good sort of uh standalone vignette to uh to sort of introduce to sort of kick off the movie before van helsing comes in and then the actual plot proper starts sort of yeah the actual prop Plot profits with Van, with swashbuckling uh, Van Helsing who leaps out of carriages and out of platforms and uh, it's it's really a, a quite a strong uh, Cushing performance a very physical performance from him and there's but there's also just like other stuff that I mean Kurt, uh, uh, horror of Dracula had that moment where um, Lucy is sort of beckoning her niece and that was really creepy but I don't think that even holds a candle to the scene in which uh, the Greta. housekeeper what's her name. Bretta? Yeah, Bretta is like whispering to the grave. Yeah, it's some, it's some sort of uh, obscene birth ritual. Yeah, it's it's just like wake up and like t- telling her all like, oh my god, it's so creepy. It's 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 this. You have to push. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's right. You have to push. It's basically like 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 she's coming out of an egg or a, more appropriately a womb. Like it's so 
Um, it's it's the sort of thing that exists in vampire fiction, but I've never seen it done with that specificity. Um, like the camera's really close in on her face near the dirt, and it's it's just a really beautiful and striking and kind of haunting image. Uh, and it's really creepy. <laughs> it's 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 maybe, it's maybe the creepiest moment in the whole movie. Yeah, it it, it is. I I I think uh, with it, Frida Jackson, I believe, is the housekeeper, and she's really good at that point. It's 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 it. I mean, other than the bad bat prop that pops up at the end of the scene, that's that's really one of the strongest segments of uh, Fisher's films. Yeah, the, I like the bat prop. <laughs> the bat bat props are great. Because bat, bats just, it's just, no one who's ever seen anything fly. Like, you don't have to even seen a bat. Like, if you've just seen a bird, you know that things don't fly by moving five miles per hour through the air. <laughs> like, it's just, the I, the very concept of a bat on a string that you bounce it and it looks like it's flapping its wings. Like, just the concept of that as a special effect. The fact that it is both so bad and so... Common. It's so ubiquitous. Yeah, it's just everywhere. It's so great. I love bat. I love bad bat props. Uh, I if I can see the strings, all the better. I, I like. <laughs> you can't see the I, strings in this one. No, you're not in this one. But uh, it's there's, <laughs> but uh, it's, yeah. I love bad bat props. I mean, it does. It, it works in conflict with the actual legitimate creepiness, but the hokey horror aspects are part of the fun as well. As watching this now, as a in 2014, yeah. Um, so it, I, it, I don't mind that stuff so much. It helps that the that the films are fast paced. They don't dwell yeah. on it as like this is the this is our big thing. It's yeah, it's, it's, one not, of the it's not like a it's it's not like the skeleton coming out in House on Haunted Hill, and it's just the bat prop getting closer and closer to the camera. You know, yeah. I mean, although something coming closer to closer to the camera is is pretty much. Uh, Terrence Fisher's thing. Um, you, you a lot of times you'll see the villain or the monster emerge in the background, and then come closer and closer uh, to its intended victim. And I, I think that's if you're going to call one defining character, one defining shot for Fisher, it's that deep focus shot of the monster appearing, maybe entering through French doors or some other way and approaching its victim. Well, that's, I mean, that's, that's one of the most iconic shots of, of horror of Dracula is that first shot of, of Christopher Lee, uh, where you yeah. can see him in shadow up on the top of the stairs. Then it keeps pushing in until you get right in his face. And he goes, I'm Dracula. <laughs> it's, yeah, it's, 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 it's like, it's the anti Lugosi. <laughs> yeah, it is. I, I actually think, uh, Tim Burton was, maybe influenced by it when he has the uh, uh, reveal of the Joker in uh, Batman where he's at the back of the scene in shadow and then slowly makes his way up and then you finally reveals oh, himself yeah. in the light with the camera looking up at him. That's, to- oh, that's totally true. Yeah, he's he's doing Dracula there. That's great. Um, So Brides of Dracula, I'd say maybe it's... Maybe the worst thing about it is it doesn't have Dracula in it. It has Baron Meinster. Uh, and Baron Meinster is blonde. <laughs> blonde <laughs> and kind weird, of a pudgy it, face. Yeah, it's a weird thing. It's a weird thing to complain about, but he's just, it's just not like, it's not scary. A blonde, blonde vampire. No, but he, he might be a little more perverse than Dracula because you kind of get the sense in horror Dracula that Dracula is a dominating one woman, uh, vampire while right yeah van helsing he, says he's 
he's replacing the the woman who is staked yeah. by Jonathan Harker with Lucy. Right, and I mean that's kind of a gives Dracula a solid revenge motive. Well, he is kind of uh, Meinster is kind of in the polygamy and maybe incest, and I guess they kind of imply homosexuality with him. When do they apply the homosexuality? Well, they talk about the parties that he was that they was engaged in, and then he puts the bite on Van Helsing. Oh, that's right. That's true. He yeah, he bites Van Helsing. Um. Yeah, that's yeah. No, you're. It's right. I just don't find him as as interesting. He's fine. He's fine. No, I mean he he's no, no Christopher Lee. Yeah. Uh, but, other than this, the, Terrence Fisher only other did Horror of Dracula, right? Or not Horror of Dracula. Uh, 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 Dracula, Prince of Darkness, right? Right, and that's basically. Um, I mean, half the movie is basically leading up to the resurrection of Dracula, and I I think uh-huh. that part is really well done. I mean, that was like. Six years later, uh, for uh, Christopher Lee's return, um, they bring him back, and they don't have anything for Dracula to do except for maybe go through some of the paces of the book that they couldn't fit into the first movie. Yeah, oh, that's too bad. Yeah, I mean, there's, there's some effective sections there, and Barbara Shelley is very good. I mean, the latter uh, Fisher movies certainly seem to have more developed female characters than the earlier Fisher movies. Yeah. Uh, Barbara Shelley is kind of a prude uh, who wants to do with going into this castle. And then when she uh, gets bitten, she she lets down her hair and becomes this uh, uh, full-fledged sexual vampiress. Um, And and that's a a pretty strong uh, character arc for her. And it's, it's, I won't say disappointing, but kind of disturbing uh, when she's put down. She's kind of a... wrestled down by a gang of monks and then uh 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 they hold her down while uh cure is the uh main monk uh father uh shandor puts his stake into her so ah. it kind of plays as a gang rape jesus uh but it's uh it's actually one of the uh, fisher sequences that's still probably kind of disturbing to this day there's also the the resurrection of Dracula is uh, very well done. Um, they kind of insert a, a Dracula servant into the film who lures two couples into the castle, um, stabs one in the back, and then kind of lures him or kind of, then lures one away and stabs him in the back. And then he kind of slowly, uh, ceremoniously raises him over a open coffin with a. Dracula's ashes and then slits his throat and he kind of bleeds like a pig into the coffin for the resurrection of Dracula. And it's very graphic for the time and it, it still holds up pretty well. That sounds good. <laughs> yeah, that that all that all works very well, but the there's really once Dracula is resurrected, he really has nothing to do and he, he doesn't have any lines and uh, they just kind of play out the cycle until they can get to the uh Climax, which is another chase back to Castle Dracula. Um, this time they kind of shoot the ice out for him and under him and drown him in uh, uh, running water. That's right. I, 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 there's a series of videos on cinemassacre.com, uh, also known as the home of the angry video game nerd, uh, which is probably what the guy runs it most famous for, or whatever. But he did a series about the, about, uh, he did a series of videos about the Hammer Dracula movies. And I remember being very surprised that running water 
kills Dracula. <laughs> I didn't know that was part of the vampire thing. Uh, I think it's, they they always make something up because uh, yeah. light is not supposed to uh, kill vampires either. But Murnau did it, so we might as well do it. And at least when he doesn't fade away, uh, when Hammer does it, he basically burns up without fire. What what um? So wait, did Murnau invented the light kills vampires? Yes, Murnau invented it. Wow. Yeah, Dracula walks around in daylight uh uh during the in Bram Stoker's Dracula. I didn't know that. I assume I assume that was like an yeah, essential it, part it, of it. No, that was kind of added on later. I mean, that's that's kind of something what Hammer did for them. I mean, you, you look at the Hammer films and you you see how you usually have a a religious character that kind of fashions something into a religious symbol and nature need to be combined to destroy Dracula in those films or Meinster in the films. You got fire and the cross and Van Helsing. Yeah. It's like an evocation of God, the sunlight. Yeah. Uh, it's, yeah, that's, I mean, that's a very, that's why that image of Van Helsing, uh, flipping up the curtains is so powerful is because it's, it's like he's calling upon God to finish Dracula off. Yeah. The purity of God is what you need to finish Dracula. He's, he's not one that you can just stake. Right. Exactly. Um, that's I, I I appreciate that. Uh, so, a, any other uh, Terrence Fisher movies you re, uh, really want to talk about? Um, I would like. I mean, I think we should talk about Curse of the Werewolf a little bit. Sure. I mean, you you saw that. I mean, uh, yeah. Uh, it's a weird. It's a. It's got a weird structure, man. Oh, it does. <laughs> it, it takes it, what it, 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 it dedicates like the first like twelve minutes uh, of the movie to the genealogy of the werewolf, except. The genealogy of the werewolf is that a woman got raped by a beggar and then gave birth on Christmas. And that's apparently all you need to build a, to, to create a werewolf. Yeah, I, I mean, that's it. I mean, I, I think they, they, they do kind of build more into it that uh, uh, moral weakness is part of what uh, makes... Uh, uh, Oliver Reed, a werewolf. It's not that he's bitten at random and cursed. It's that he has something morally weak inside him that seems to come out. So I, I think they actually build it some some part of his character. I mean, they they open the film in the opening credits with a uh, Oliver Reed crying, um, and a crying man is not something you right. see as a uh, in in that era of film very often. It's a image of weakness. What? So- so what is the because i mean he he turns into a werewolf as a child what is the moral weakness that makes him a, a child or that makes him turn into a werewolf as a child well um i mean that to say although i i think when you see the uh hairy-handed uh, child rhythmically writhing at the um window it kind of brings up the idea of masturbation that's weird i don't know i don't know <laughs> if i agree with you because i I, I so I read into it, and apparently, originally the beggar it was supposed to be that the beggar was had was a werewolf, and that that was where the curse came from. But then that scene was removed because the concept of a werewolf raping a woman was more much more horrible than a, a man raping a woman. Yeah, well, I I know that the curse of the werewolf uh, really fell victim to the censors at the time. Yeah, uh, it's a um, nasty movie, yeah. like. 
Before yeah. the, any you get to any werewolf, I mean, and it's not it's not American Werewolf in London. There's not super gruesome scenes of people being torn apart by the werewolf. But like before you get to any of that, you just have this uh, this Duke or whatever I can't, Marquez, right? The, you have him just like having this uh, wedding party and just torturing this beggar and humiliating him, and it just goes. The scene just kind of goes on and on and. Uh, without because uh, at this point you haven't established what the story is and you haven't established who the beggar is in relation to any protagonist you're going to be following you kind of know that he's not going to be the protagonist just because he's so dumb um but like so it just it just kind of feels like endless cruelty at the beginning and then and then the woman gets raped by this beggar. like it's just it's just so nasty i can imagine it uh it falling victim to censors yeah i mean Part of it might why it may have fallen victim to censors is it came out after Peeping Tom. They were oh, yeah. uh, they were kind of lenient towards Hammer because Hammer was actually bringing in foreign money into the UK beforehand. But the, after Peeping Tom bombed and there was a backlash, if you um, Derek Hill wrote a really scathing article in Sight and Sound on the horror craze, calling it out, and I I think between that and Peeping Tom bombing and Revenge of Frankenstein not doing well as uh, Curse of Frankenstein. They said, okay, enough of this. <laughs> uh, so that was one of the um, turning points in uh, British horror, and it kind of gave an opening for Mario Bava and uh, Roger Corman to fill the void. Um, but, I mean, Terrence Fisher was reportedly very angry with the censors because they kind of changed the rules of the game. Um, at that point, um, I, he was really proud of a, uh, ad lib part where Anthony Dawson, who portrays, uh, um, evil Marquez kind of picks a syphilitic, uh, piece of dead skin off his nose and examines it. And he had to cut that. Um, I mean, that's one of the things that he was, uh, really happy with because he came up with something that really, uh, depicted the, um, the, the Marquez's the pre and he couldn't use it. Uh, he felt that they, for once they were, uh, interfering with what he intended yeah. there. So I, but I, so at any rate, it's a it, it like these most of these movies. It moves at a at a brisk clip. So it just it it just is a weird structure that it's only like the last hour of the film is the actual story proper. Um, yeah, I'd say probably the actual last forty five minutes. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, although although Reed is very good in it. So no, he's 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 outstanding, and it and it hits the the things that you want out of a traditional werewolf story, which is this, the tragedy you want the person to not want to become a werewolf. Um, it, it, yeah. I mean, they, they kind of introduce a, a love story that kind of works. I mean, I don't think Fisher has a great love story in him, even though he said that he had uh, admired the work of Frank Brazaji and he was known for his uh, silent uh, melodramatic love stories. Um, but I think this one actually kind of works. It's all right. I, it doesn't. It does. Yeah, it, it's, yeah, not, it's great. not a distraction. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I I don't think there's a, a a great love story from Fisher in any of his films, and certainly none before it. But this one kind of works. Um, I kind of more like the story of the best friend who just gets who just you you would expect the best friend to last longer, and the best friend just gets destroyed first first time Oliver Reed changes into a werewolf. Yep, first time. Um, what? I mean, we, we were talking about the uh, portrayal of the poor. What do you think of the uh, the portrayal of the nobility in uh, Fisher's films? Well, I mean, de- I mean, definitely the Marquis is very is is the 
is the typical evil aristocrat sort of character. I mean, he is, I mean, and the same character appears, it's at the beginning of Curse of the Werewolf, and it's at the beginning of uh, Hound of the Baskervilles, uh, which is when it tells the story, it's a great opening of Hound of the Baskervilles, uh, it's telling the story of how the curse of the Baskervilles, you know, curse came upon the Baskervilles, um, and that has another sort of evil aristocrat, uh, arguably even, no, I'm not going to say arguably, like, more evil, because he just has someone in prison in his room that he is, it's where it suggests that he's just going to let all of his friends gang rape her. Like it's, it's really nasty stuff. Um, so it's not, I, I would, I would definitely say that, uh, Fisher, it's not, you know, despite the fact that these films often sort of have very questionable portrayals of the poor, it's not that the rich are always moral. It's that the moral are always rich. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I mean, the, I would say the professionals are are the ones that Fisher has his uh, uh, sympathies with, but the I nobility. Suppose so. uh, I mean, not the nobility that uh, inherit their wealth, but the the doctor who went through education and the scientists and even some of the uh, religious class. But uh, he he doesn't have any any sympathy for their, the nobility in most of his films. I, I guess that I guess that's a that's a distinction worth making. Um, to me, it just it just felt like well, these are all all the protagonists are rich, like at all and all these movies like they all have lavish sitting rooms <laughs> and castles with servants, like not not necessarily even castles, but like even in the Mummy, like yeah. he could have just been an archaeologist, but instead he is just like an archaeologist on this estate, uh, who you know has so much respect and, um, so I mean, in certainly the depictions of the of the rich in curse of the werewolf i mean at worst i mean at best they're sort of ineffective like the mayor of the town in which the the sort of werewolf menace is happening to oliver reed when oliver reed was a child um and then at worst they're the the marquis but still uh no matter how what no matter how it happened through censoring and editing or whatever like the implication in that film is that just having that lineage of of disreputable <laughs> sort of that disreputable lineage is the thing that makes him a werewolf it's the curse and it's this i mean even the end that with the with the sort of the father being the one who kills him his adopt it's his adoptive father and it's sort of the idea of olivery needs to go out on his own um and not follow under his adoptive father footsteps and it's that division is just uh sort of hammered home uh and and it's sort of the tragedy of him not being able to get past uh, his where he yeah. came from. He doesn't even get the Which, get the uh, nobility of reverting uh, to his uh, uh, human self in the and he's uh, he dies as a beast and he stays as a beast. <laughs> I didn't even I didn't even put that together. That's really interesting. Yeah, he he. Unla- it's not like a. It's the sa- the last shot is sort of similar to American Werewolf in London, but it's not instead of. It, uh, you know, in, instead of it being him turning back into a man, he just, yeah, he stays a werewolf. That's really interesting. Yeah, I think that's like the the only uh, uh, werewolf movie where it happens. Which, again, it's not, and, and that is, I mean, that is a story of someone, that that is a story of the tragedy of having that lineage. So in that way, it's empathizing with someone with that lineage. It's not the one-dimensional drunkard character that you see in most of these movies. So I think Curse of the Werewolf is 
probably better than a lot of the earlier ones uh, in those terms. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's certainly thematically richer. Yeah. Um, it's a, yeah, and, and it's, and again, it's, all of these movies are just well-told stories, which is, it's, it can be easy to forget that there was a time when something as ubiquitous as a werewolf movie could just tell that story well. You know, it wasn't a werewolf movie, but this time they're against soldiers, or it was a, it's a vampire movie, but the twist is blank. Like, it's, it's nice going back and watching these and just seeing really good versions of the very typical kind of story. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that's it. And I, I think that the uh, typical version, well, maybe slightly tweak, because I said it, yeah. evil is attractive in uh, Fisher's films versus the earlier films, and yeah, the environments I, are attractive. I, but, I, I mean, I they, guess, they are I straightforward. Guess I'm, yeah, I'm looking at it from a modern perspective. I'm not necessarily yeah. looking at it from what came before. I'm looking at it as... In 2014, if you haven't seen these films, you may think that you have seen these films just because, yeah, I know what a vampire movie is. There's a fucking hundred vampire movies, but there's not a hundred vampire movies that are done well, as well as Horror of Dracula or Brides of Dracula. There's not a hundred werewolf movies that are as done well as Curse of the Werewolf um, that don't have some kind of twist on them, like especially you know, for modern audiences. Or is, or taken as seriously as they're they're taken in the Hammer films. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. That there's that. Yeah. I mean, they're 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 pretty earnest, um, and I I think they also kind of de- defy expectations of what a Hammer film is. Certainly, there's uh, the plunging necklines and heaving bosoms in Fisher films, but I I never get the impression that he's really leering at those female characters. No, that came late. That's like Vampire Lovers. I have I have Vampire Lovers on DVD. I've seen that. Um, that's that's that sort of a uh, later in the late sixties and seventies yeah. is when you would uh, mm-hmm. get that sort of uh, sensationalized sexuality. Uh, the yeah, sex, I mean, the sexuality the... in Fisher's movies are much more subtle. Yeah, I mean, you, you do have the 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 shot of the uh, servant girl covering herself up, but I think it's works well in context. It, it uh, projects her as vulnerable instead of sexy. Right. Yeah, I mean, I mean. It's it, so much the, like it's not that these movies aren't sexual; it's just that they're coded. Yeah, they're they're coded, and he he doesn't. Uh, it, I wouldn't say they're gratuitously sexy for the most. I mean, there's there's certainly some. Uh, he's aware of the sex in them, but he he's he's not uh, just trying to be titillating. There's usually a purpose for it in there. There's something thematically going on uh, when when he when he has it. It's not just oh here's here's a girl with some tits. Yeah, yeah. I mean, vampire lovers will have a lesbian scene, whereas Brides of Dracula will have a scene with lesbian overtones. And I think that's a very important distinction. And it's not that les- explicit lesbian scene is bad and lesbian overtones is good, but the it's less ex- the the the, uh, the 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 one with the overtones is much more subtle, and it's it there's more craft to it. Yeah. Um, I mean, I'm not, you know, yeah. it's not like vampire lovers is an earnest tale about lesbianism. It's about, it's about a fucking evil lesbian. <laughs> like, you know what I mean? Yeah, I know what you mean. And I mean, I mean, Fisher is aware of the male gaze too. I mean, as I said, I think he's, uh, examines, uh, uh, the gaze. He, he's aware of men trying to c- control females. It pops up in his films going way before his hammer. It goes back to, uh, uh, stolen face where he has a plastic surgeon uh 
reconstruct a woman into the spitting image of his uh, uh, a lost love, and then uh, that goes out of control. It comes out in a four-sided triangle where the scientist basically clones a woman that's in love with his assistant. And he's unaware of how the clone would still be attracted to the uh, uh, partner. Um, and it comes up right. in the Gorgon too, where he, you have the oh sure uh, female character who's usually presented as power, but the men all think they know that they control her, they see her true self, and they're really seeing the image that they project on her and what they gaze on her. Yeah, the Gor yeah the Gorgon has uh, a lot of that. Everyone is yeah, everyone is <coughs> yeah. I know, I know. sort of. Projecting their yeah, own I mean, to her. Uh, I know. I know you're not a fan of the Gorgon. It's, it's a slow moving movie. It's odd, oddly strange. I'm not. I'm not a fan of it. Uh, yeah, structurally. It, I think just the. I think it just has a bad script. I think. It, I think Fisher did a fine job directing it, and I think there are good moments, especially towards the end. But uh, I think. I just. Yeah, I mean, they script. they go through the uh, the Gorgon build up basically twice uh, before they actually get to moving the plot along and. The main character is never well developed. I think it's an interest, interesting film thematically. Um, I think it's well shot. Fisher is well aware that the Gor- Gorgon is Barbara Shelley, which is not much of a mystery, even though it's presented as a mystery in the script. Uh, is the is the person of power? Yeah. He shows her on an upper level, sitting in a throne throughout it. Uh, so he's kind of a, aware of who actually holds the power in it, even if the men don't know who it is. Yeah, for sure. And there, there's the. I mean, the, the effects aren't particularly good, but it's a very good. The good. It's a very good gag uh, when they're first revealed. Yeah, in the, the reflection, uh, reflection is good. I mean, you can always see that the men look in a reflection of themselves to turn the gaze on themselves before they turn the gaze on the gorgon. So they kind of uh, mm-hmm. showing their own weakness before they're really being exposed to it. So I mean, thematically, it's a a really interesting, I think, good film, but. It, I understand that people aren't crazy about it. Old, the mystery is dead on arrival. It's oddly structured, um, but it has some, it has some good thematic things going on. It. Yeah, and it wastes Cushing. Oh, I, I don't think uh, Cushing is so. Yeah, well, he does sports such a some good mutton chops for him. Well, that's true. You know what? I take it back. <laughs> Cushing has some great mutton chops. That's a that's an A plus. That's A plus Cushing. Cushing with mutton chops. That's a that's a B minus Cushing, which is still fine. A fine Cushing. Uh, Christopher Lee's good in that though, and it's it's always nice to see Christopher Lee getting uh, actual roles where he gets to speak instead of like even in the Mummy. Like it, it's crazy that Christopher Lee became the Lon Chaney of. Of Hammer because Christopher Lee is not like Christopher Lee. You think of his voice, like that's the number one. Th- yeah, th- like he was trained in mime though, which is uh, surprising to a lot of people. And you kind of see that in Mummy. Oh yeah, and you can see it in, in Curse of Frankenstein no, too. Where I mean, he's, he, the he's Mummy kind of oddly dis uh, uh, discoordinated. The the Mummy is just a monster movie, but. Christopher Lee is so expressive in his eyes that he almost makes you think like, oh, there might be more going on there. Like they, it's it, there's there's such a sadness to his mummy that it almost tricks you into like caring about it as a character. But then like the actual plot yeah, it, is nothing with that. The actual plot is just a monster movie. It's a it's a it's a fine monster movie. It's a good looking monster movie. But yeah, he uh, Christopher he, he Lee almost so elevates it, and, and at least he's a powerful monster <laughs> in that movie. I mean, it's not a uh, a weak 
everybody can outrun him. He's a he's a strong, fast, uh, powerful character who rips uh, doors off right off their hinges. Yeah, I I I'm, I'm I like I like the first Universal Mummy pretty good, but those sequels are uh, are real bad. <laughs> those 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 sequels. Yeah. I mean, the, the Mummy the Boris is Karloff not a one good is good. Monster, and and I, I kind of so like uh, the Mummy's Hand, which is kind of an action adventure take on it, where they go to, to Egypt on an expedition, and there's yeah, the, the Mummy's Hand is good until the Mummy yeah. shows up, <laughs> and then you're like, oh, this is the payoff. This this just shambling. Like there's so much going on. Like when the when it's just a person and the mummy in the room, and the mummy is edging towards them and crowding them. Like that that can be an effective scare. But when there's just like a fight going on in the distance, and then concurrently there's a mummy chasing someone, and then there's a fire, and it's like the mummy gets so lost in the shuffle that it's just, it, it's so ineffective. But I do you know I like I saw the mummy's hand at, yeah. on Sven Gulli actually, uh, and I, I like the first uh, part of the mummy's hand where they're sort of just. Uh, treasure hunters and they meet the magician and it's kind of yeah it's yeah, kind of like steven summer's version adventure. yeah i i like steven summer's version actually i think steven summer version cuts uh splits the difference between uh mummy's hand and the first universal mummy really well uh it's it's i mean it's it's the cgi has not aged well at all and it it is a hollywood action movie but i like that movie a, a lot i think it's a lot of fun okay um while we were going on about women in <laughs> pictures films. <laughs> okay. All right. You like Stephen Summer. All right. Well, I like Stephen Summer's Mummy, too. <laughs> At least I like the first I one. I don't like any of the sequels. Super, I thought you were just being, like, super dismissive. No, no, no. I, I, I just don't have anything to say except for it's a fun movie. Yeah. Uh, no, the sequel The sequel is terrible. Yeah, I, I have no use for the sequels, but the the first one I, I thought is fun. It's, it's not real memorable but it's, it certainly was a fun time at the movies and um i mean if you it's certainly better than some of the well it's better than uh indiana jones and the crystal skull yeah no for yeah. sure and i and i like the idea that uh and i and i like rachel weiss as like a uh as a librarian as taking the <laughs> as sort of the well let, let's take the dorkiness of indiana jones as a teacher and let's take it one step further and have it, a librarian on this adventure <laughs> yeah Someone doesn't even teach teach, they just file books. But they're 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 the one going on this adventure. It's yeah. pretty good. I mean it, 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 it's a for for an update they it, it it's it's a, it's about as good as you could expect for the late nineties. Is it is is it the is it the most successful universal horror uh remake? Uh from Hollywood, I should say. Not including the hammer films or any, you know. Yeah, I would say is, yeah. Because I didn't I didn't, I didn't I didn't see Antonio Banderas' Wolfman. I don't like Francis Ford Coppola's Dracula. I haven't seen Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. I mean, they, they haven't. I mean, I think uh, Fisher's Phantom of the Opera is the most interesting remake of Phantom of the Opera. Uh, sure. Uh, other than that, mm, I would say the, yeah, the Mummy is probably the top of the heap. Interesting, <laughs> but you don't you don't normally think of Stephen Summers' Mummy being top of anything, but it no, turns but at least, out, at least it, it knows what it wants to be. Yeah, exactly. It turns out take it less seriously is a good direction. Um, you know, don't let the le- don't let the legacy of these monsters overwhelm what these movies actually are. Yeah, it, it doesn't try to pay homage to it and be uh expressionistic and i don't think he can really be too expressionistic in uh modern hollywood 
Yeah, I mean, it helps that it it helps that the Mummy is the lowest tier Universal horror, horror franchise. It's it gets the least respect and probably deservedly so. Yeah, certainly the Lon Chaney ones are good. <laughs> yeah. Um. I know we were we were speaking about women. And I think we should talk about uh, uh, one of Martin Scorsese's favorites, uh, Frankenstein Created Woman. So yeah, I I was really wanted to watch this, and it just I didn't end up having time. I didn't I couldn't. So tell me about Frankenstein Created Woman. Well, it's certainly the the most metaphysical of uh, Hammers, and the most probably imaginative sequel they've ever come back up with. I mean, when you you think of uh, Frankenstein creating a a female monster, that's a natural thing, but. Um, it certainly avoids all the trappings of Bride of Frankenstein and goes in a wholly original direction. Um, it, it basically has the uh, your parents were one thing, so you're doomed to repeat it going on because you have the main character, Hans, who is the son of a murderer uh, who witnesses his father being guillotined. And then uh, he ends up, through machinations of the plot, guillotined himself. Um, but he he's actually protecting the reputation of his uh, deformed uh, girlfriend uh, who he had spent the night with, uh, and she commits suicide as a result, and Baron Frankenstein ends up uh, transplanting the soul of Hans into the body of Christine, the, the woman, so we have kind of a man trapped in a woman's body, kind of transgendered. I won't say horror film because it's not very scary at all, but it's kind of a twisted, tragic romance fairy tale. This Frankenstein, other than, again, other than the sort of vague dread you get from the arc and from Frankenstein's arc in the the first film, those Frankenstein movies aren't very, they're not really trying to be horror films. They're this this weird other thing. Yeah, they're, they're weird... Science fiction, ethics, um, fairy tale, morality tale yeah. going on. Um, I mean, I mean, Fisher's films are. I mean, you come in expecting when you hear a horror film uh, that they're going to be one thing, but Fisher's films are often something quite different than what you expect. I mean, they they take the the subject seriously, even when you have uh, the mad scientist transplanting souls from one body to another. Um, which could be played for camp, but uh, Fisher treats it very seriously, and then you have history repeating it throughout it. Um, it's it's the one f- film where you could see that maybe Fisher would have had a future in the seventies if he was a younger director. Uh, I mean, he started his well, he 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 came to directing late, and he didn't become a major director until Christopher Frankenstein was fifty three. Uh, so by the time he was in his 60s and he was making his latter horror films, he was already uh, near retirement age. Um, so he, he probably wouldn't have made the uh, transition in the 70s as it is, but he ended up being hit by a car and breaking his leg. And when you're overweight and have probably smoked for 40 years and uh, being hit by a car in your 60s, you're not going to recover for that. <laughs> Yeah, that's uh, the life expectancy was way different back then. Yeah, well, maybe not way different, but uh, certainly th- those are not the conditions that would uh, uh, lead one to have a long legacy. <laughs> or certainly not I, a work one that one that couldn't work. But anyhow, when he made uh, uh, Frankenstein created woman, he basically uh, foresaw um, uh, Stanley Kubrick's uh, 
Alex and his droogs and his three dandy villains that are uh, kind of All right, yeah. uh, uh, that actually commit the murder that which Hans is uh, uh, convicted. So there's a, a subplot in the, or maybe not a plot. The main plot is uh, the Christine Hans uh, hybrid using his her sexuality to lure these uh, dandies uh, into secluded places where so that he could drop the axe on them, basically. Yeah, it's 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 a it sounds like a crazy movie, <laughs> and at, at any it it certainly doesn't. Yeah, it it sounds it, crazy. It, it, it is crazy, but it's it's held together by some sort of strong vision of what it is. It's really thematically rich, and it's not scary. I mean, I I, I wouldn't call it a scary movie, but there there's something going on in there that's that's really sticks in your head when you consider it. I mean, it's. Is it a transgender uh, horror film or what is going on there and the souls and sure. Cushing is really good as usual. Um, Didn't ha- Hammer did another – Hammer did a gender-bending uh, Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde movie, right? Yeah, Dr. and Sister Hyde. How is that? I have not that's seen not, it. That's not a Terrence Fisher movie. So, okay, no, that was, a, that was in the 70s. Right. But I heard it's, it's one of their better ones from the 70s. Uh Help because it's an interesting premise, and they actually nail the casting of uh, uh, Ralph Bates and Martine Bestwick as uh, uh, Doctor Jekyll and Sister Hyde because they they actually resemble each other. Um, so it's, it's certainly an interesting movie, and something was actually going in the hammer at the time. Apparently, where they did it. I mean, the latter hammer certainly uh, uh, went more in a I won't say women friendly, but women interested direction. Uh, right. I mean, some of it is pretty much pure titillation, like the vampire lovers in Lust for a Vampire. But if you're going to say there's a hammer glamour taking place, I think it's probably the latter films you're talking about where the female characters take a more prominent role. Yeah. Count- Countess Dracula. That's the I have the I have the vampire lovers Countess Dracula uh, double feature DVD. <laughs> sure. Yeah. And Twins of Evil. I guess Hands of the Ripper has a female protagonist in it. It's the daughter of Jack the Ripper. Oh, good. <laughs> so how 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 so, late did uh, to step away from Fisher for just a moment? How late did Hammer keep making these horror movies? Did they make them in the eighties? They did not in the eighties. They kind of petered out in the uh, mid seventies. Um, they actually were out of date in the early seventies when you had. Uh, Rosemary Baby, Night of the Living Dead, um, The Exorcist, and Texas Chainsaw Massacre uh, appearing, and suddenly Hammer appeared like uh, old-fashioned. I mean, between 1957 and about 1970, you can say the dominant form of horror was in the mode of Terrence Fisher, but certainly changed in the early 70s, and uh, Fisher was no longer working at that time. Michael Carreras took over the the company and he never really had a, the interest in uh horror that uh anthony hines did or the business savvy that his father james careers had um michael careers triumph is probably one million years bc with uh raquel welch in the fur bikini so they kind of fell behind and they never developed uh new talent because uh, fisher was so dominant um and the new talent they could have developed, like Michael Reeves, uh, who did Witchfinder General, died of a 
drug overdose, so uh, uh, British horror was kind of uh, uh, drying up. And what they tried that could have worked, um, they they tried to do a Dennis Wheatley uh, novel to the Devil a Daughter, which is kind of a satanic thing, like the the Omen. But I it was, seen that. But the but the the Omen was well directed and uh, uh, stylish, while the, the, to the Devil a Daughter really never really worked. The Devil and Daughter also kind of just feels like a swashbuckling adventure horror movie, right? And th- I mean that's that's kind of like uh, part of the, they never really were able to figure out what to do. I mean, part of it is I don't think they took it as seriously uh, as Terrence Fisher did. Part of it was they were just behind it, and part of it is they they never really found the right talent. I mean, I kind of view uh, Halloween as kind of the updating of all the classic. Uh, Late fifties, sixties uh, tropes. You got obviously you got the cycle references going in it with uh, uh, Doctor Loomis, who's uh, Sam Loomis, who is a, a direct callback to Psycho. Um, you kind of have the uh, thing from another world with the uh, jumpsuited uh, uh, thing uh, stalking through the night, and you kind of have horror Dracula going through it. You have a, a scientist who is convinced that the that there's a existence of a supernatural evil presence that can go anywhere and invade homes at any time and stalks these young women. Um, so kind of Carpenter kind of took everything that was fifties uh, and sixties and funneled it through himself and kind of made it his own. And Hammer was never able to do that. I never thought about Halloween in, in those terms. Uh, it's very interesting though. I I think, I think yeah, I mean, fish. I I prefer the work of John Carpenter, but I think of Terrence Fisher and John Carpenter as very similar, like kind of uh, just really skilled storytellers um, and not necessarily overly stylish in any way, but um, but they know when to be stylish within their movies. Yeah, I, I think that's a good comparison. I mean, John Carpenter wrote the intro to Terrence Fisher's biography. Oh, wow. Um, and he always said The Curse of Frankenstein is one of his most influential films on him. Yeah, I can see that. But yeah, and also just yeah. the idea of doing lots of different kinds of movies. Um, yeah. I mean, we didn't touch on much of Terrence Fisher's work pre-Hammer, but he did a lot of movies pre-Hammer. Uh, were they, they're, well, what are, they're pre- mostly, Precursor Dracula, anyhow. Were they cr- he, I mean, crime films, mostly? or Uh... A little bit of, but I mean, in the in the fifth, fifth, well, he he started out uh, working his way up the system, and, and he did a suspense thriller which he called "So Long at the Fair" in in 1950, which is basically a woman uh, and her brother go to Paris during the World Fair. The husband disappears, and the woman tries to find, uh, or the the brother disappears. The woman tries to find her brother with the shady foreigners being suspicious and it's filmed in very steep shadows and the uh uh head uh mistress of the hotel is dressed in black and will stand at the top of the stairs and uh tower over everything and that's kind of where you see fisher becoming fisher um and that kind of was his calling card because he was part of the studio system of gainesville studios which collapsed shortly thereafter, and then he was a kind of a free agent doing the uh, 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 um, uh, noir films. Um, they're British noir films, so they're not as uh, um, 
fatalistic as the American films of the time, but uh, there's deep shadows and uh, uh, impoverished environments, and you can see Fisher is very conscious of the uh, environment that he's uh, filming at the time. Uh, he always said he admired uh, Stagecoach was his favorite film, so you can see a lot of shots of uh, characters framed by doorways and deep focus and some ceilings in there, and that kind of carried through his to his gothic films. Stagecoach, yeah, I guess so. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you can kind of see that when the appearances of the main character, you get the big uh, crane shot zoom in of John Wayne and Stagecoach. Oh, that's and true, you, you that's see, true. And you can see when he makes when Dracula makes his appearance in the first appearance of Christopher Lee as the monster that he kind of is trying to do something uh, as memorable. That yeah no okay yeah no that 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 I see for sure yeah and and that the uh, um, that uh, uh, basically the the straightforward storytelling of uh, Ford is something that he shares with Carpenter. Um, although Carpenter probably more of a Hawks fan than a Ford fan. Sure. Well, I mean, who's not a Ford fan? <laughs> Say, saying like, uh, you know, he's, you know, you know, a movie he really liked was Stagecoach. <laughs> that's just that's like saying, you know, an interesting fact about David Fincher. He thinks Jaws is uh, <laughs> is, is is really good film. Like yeah, everyone thinks Jaws is a good film. Yeah, everybody does. I mean, I mean, that's not it's not a real shock. But I mean, that that's what no, he that, said in his favorite films. <laughs> sure, that's his specific. But that's specific. Uh, sort of introduction of character is yeah yeah i mean and you can see that in fisher's film where he has foreground and uh, background planes of action and uh that's that's kind of you can actually see the info um as uh so i think i think we're about ready try unless you have anything else to say about terrence fisher um i will say he made three interesting uh science fiction films in the uh 60s uh, away from Hammer that are worth a look. Um, at least, well, at least two of them are worth a look. The the one that's really worth a look is uh, uh, the Earth Die Screaming. Um, you 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 were you you really downgraded that. Like, you made three three science fiction yeah. films in the 60s worth a look. Or, well, at least the two that were the one that's worth yeah. a well, look. I mean, is... Island of Terror is a fine movie. Um, I, I I think a lot of people will enjoy it. I mean, it, it showed up in Sanguli in the past year. But the one that you you really should take a look at is uh, the Earth Die Screaming, which is kind of a uh-huh. robot apocalypse zombie film, if if you can believe it. Uh, it's basically a variation Day of the Triffids. Um, about ninety percent, ninety nine percent of the population is uh, killed off, and then you have uh, robots, and then later zombie uh, wandering around a, a village while the survivors hole up in a pub. It's kind of a precursor to something like um, Shaun of the Dead, Night of the Living Dead. I mean, it's basically Day of the Triffids before so, that. Shaun, Shaun of Shaun, yeah, of, the Shaun of the Dead, Dead with, with the, the pub. pub or the World's End, even because you have the robot. Um, you can you can. I mean, it's it's a short little film, about sixty five minutes, but it's it, a it's in black is and it white. In, is it in color? Yeah, I was I was about to say like I can't imagine that sort of science fiction film in color in. The, no, it's a era. it's a real budget, low budget film, yeah. but it's it's uh, it's actually kind of, I mean, it, it kind of foresees what would uh, evolve into something like Night of the Living Dead. Uh, you can see some things that would pop up in uh, later films. I know John Carpenter is a fan of it, and he, you can see the uh, 
people are walking around the scene and a robot will kind of loom in a window in the background. And at one point, a female character is uh, chased up the stairs and hides in a louvered closet or louvered wardrobe while a a blank-faced zombie kind of uh, enters the room looking for her. So it's it's kind of like you can see some of the uh, roots of it pop up in Halloween. That's interesting. I just, I got that Halloween box set. Um, I wonder. There's two comments. I wonder how if he references any of these movies in the commentary tracks or the because I always I I always thought about Halloween as the beginning of the thing of the thing it's part of, not as the uh, the thing that proceeds from. You know, I I never thought yeah. about where Halloween comes from. I always just thought about like what what everything has taken from Halloween. But obviously, it's not as if I, I you know, it's not it's not as if John Carpenter. Or it's not as if any film, uh, really is just wholly original. You know, let alone a masterpiece like Halloween. Obviously, that comes from somewhere. Yeah, I mean, that comes from somewhere. I mean, and let's not mistake it that Halloween is a masterpiece and uh, The Earth Dies Screaming and even Horror of Dracula aren't quite masterpieces. And Hammer and Terrence Fisher are really transitional, uh, kind of linking the modern horror to the yeah. uh, the stuff that came before. I mean, That's that's that's, that's true. I mean, yeah. They were a bold break and a new wave of horror, but they're not modern horror. Um, so you're saying Halloween is nothing compared to today. The the Halloween is a, the earth died screaming ripoff is what you're telling me. (laughs) Go back. Okay, cool. Um, so, uh, what are your top three Terrence Fisher movies? Um, my number one is Brides of Dracula. Uh, that's just a real great fairy tale swashbuckling, uh, uh, Peter Cushing with a with a really exciting climax. My number two is Horror Dracula, and it's lean, um, it's exciting. Peter Cushing and Christopher Lee are great. And he is actually one we didn't discuss, which uh, Frankenstein must be destroyed, which is probably Frankenstein is most evil. Um, and it, it actually has uh, the creation or actually the brain transplant from one unwilling... Uh, a subject into the body of another who is murdered is actually kind of a uh, something treated with very uh, respect and explores the complications. It's, it's really Fisher's most sympathetic and complicated uh, uh, monster creation or Frankenstein creation, and it has one heck of a climax. And this was his last uh, film, right? For all practical purposes, it was last. He came back and did uh, Frankenstein and the Monster from Hell three years later, but. And, oh, that's right. He that yeah, that's the last the, one. The Frankenstein and the Monster from Hell is basically Fisher, who it basically a curtain call for everybody involved. It basically a thank you because Fisher was really couldn't move at that point. His wife had help him dress every day. He couldn't move, and he was just a, a tired, sick uh, old man. And the film kind of re- reflects it. Uh, Cushing is old at that point, and there's a lot of gore in it. And there's some interesting allegories going on in it, but it's it's just not an exciting film. Okay. My uh, top three are, number one, Horror of Dracula. I think Bride of Dracula, is, Brides of Dracula is actually scarier and probably well-made, with certainly with a better ending. But I, I just love how Horror of Dracula is paced. Um, 
Number two is Brides of Dracula. And my number three is Curse of Frankenstein. Uh, Hound of the Baskervilles is nearly there. And so is the – right before – right behind Curse of Frankenstein, The Mummy, Curse of the Werewolf, and Hound of the Baskervilles are all kind of very close behind. I enjoy all those films quite a bit as well. Yeah. I mean, Fisher has a shortage of good horror films. That's true. In fact, um, he might have more good horror it, films it is, than any other director. No, it's true. It's it, it's true what you said that there these really there really are no out and out masterpieces um, in 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 his work. But he has a lot of really good horror films, and horror it's hard to be consistent in horror because horror is about surprising the audience. Um, but he he's very consistent. So. Um, Robert, thank you for being on. Uh, it's been my pleasure. Uh, I'm, I'm glad we finally got to do this, talk about Terrence Fisher. This was very important for me uh, as far as uh, being a fan of horror films. And like you said, there, there were, uh, these were sort of bridging the gap between the old and the modern. And this, in, it, in doing preparation for this episode, sort of bridged my knowledge uh, in the same way, and I've, I've gained a greater appreciation of both, uh, of both sort of eras, um, sort of the uh, you know the 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 universal, and then the and then the seventies, um, and uh, it was it was a lot of fun. Um, so where where can uh, people find your work, Robert? Um, I'm a regular uh, uh, contributor over at Where the Long Tail Ends. Um, you can find. More of my comments on the Milwaukee Film Festival there, a whole bunch of reviews on that, and uh, uh, I'm running a, a new podcast called Still Watching the Skies, which should, we should have a couple episodes up in the next few weeks. Awesome. Awesome. I can't wait to listen to that. Yeah, I, I, I'm, I'm, um, we're, we're going to get a rhythm, and then we're going to probably get some guests on for that. But we, we are definitely going to look at uh, horror films or science fiction films of all era, and I think and specifically the lesser-known ones, just so uh, we're not doing Star Wars in 2001 and Star Trek all the time. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Uh, I, 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 I can't wait to I, – I can't wait for you guys to do Fiend Without a Face. That's on the list. <laughs> that is a fun movie. That's what that's what I need. I need some fiend without a face in my life. I love. <laughs> I just mostly mostly more than anything else. I love the sound effect of the blood gushing. Yeah, and the stop motion animation of the the brain creatures is great. Yeah, that's that's what I need. <laughs> um. So, uh, anyway, uh, you can uh, find us. Uh, at directorsclubpodcast.com. You can send us an email, directorsclubpodcast at gmail.com. I'm on Letterboxd at Patrick Rapole, on Twitter at Patrick Rapole. Jim is on Letterboxd at Instant Jim uh, and on Twitter at Instant Jim. He, uh, Jim no longer on the show, but still watching a fair amount of movies. Um, so you can always follow him there. Uh, the next episode we're going to be doing is on... Uh, believe it or not, we're having Gabe Powers on to talk about an Italian horror director. In this case, Italian-American, George A. Romero. That'll Um, be great. Yeah, it's going to be really fun. Um, We're going to not be talking about the thing that we always talk about. (laughs) Uh, When 
when you talk about George Romero, we're not going to be talking about Night of the Living Dead, and we're not going to be talking about Dawn of the Dead. Um, uh, we have... Ugh, I'm sorry, I'm trying to look up, because it's, it's going to be me, Gabe Powers, and one other guest, and I can't remember his name. He is a... Was yeah, it James Gillum? James Gillum. Uh, yes, it is James Gillum. Oh, thank you. You know. You should be on. You should host the show. I don't know what I'm oh, he's on. He's on Where the Long Tail Ends. Oh, uh, I see. I don't, I don't know what I'm doing. but uh, we're prob- <laughs> He's a nice guy. Yeah, well, we're probably going to end up talking about Martin and, uh, I don't know, um, <laughs> Monkey Shines, maybe. <laughs> Night, Night Riders. Riders would be another interesting one. Uh, I like Monkey Shines. If I had to name my top three uh, George Romero movies, they'd probably all three be Monkey Shines. Uh, if, <laughs> if only because it's A, got a great title, and B, it's got a great paraplegic sex scene. Uh, and those are really the only two things you need in a movie uh, to get my attention. Um, anyway, uh, until next time, uh, I've been Patrick Rapole. And Jim's not here, but I can say, I love you, Jim. <laughs>